Blog Talk Radio. You walk into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the superstates that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. It is a system which has constricted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. I appeared before the Congressional Committee to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. The consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government, which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nature. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN standards. I have planned another closing message, but I feel compelled to say what I'm about to say. Now, I risk sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but it's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organization. But we are making a stand, and we're waking everybody up that 9/11 was an inside job, and you are the minority. 
You are the cowards who don't know the truth. You're the people that serve this evil system. You're the people that serve a system that hurts innocent men, women, and children. Not just Iraqis, not just Afghans, not just Africans, but the people right here in this nation. You serve a new world order that attacks and feeds on you. And I'm here to tell you that you will be defeated. Your hours are numbered. We've got the energy. We've got the life force. All you've got is evil backing you up. All you've got is greed and liking to look at yourself in the mirror. Because deep down, the New World Order is a pot-bellied, chicken-necked ninny. And all the armor and all the weapons are nothing. You are nothing compared to good. You are nothing compared to life. And you will be defeated. I want the individuals out there, I want free humanity to turn themselves loose, to cut the chains loose. And to use the end of that chain to slap the new world order right upside the head. You've got the power. You want to know who can defeat the new world order? It is you. You're the individuals that are going to be able to defeat this system. You're the individuals that are going to be able to take down the new world order. It doesn't matter if Ron Paul wins. It doesn't matter if they rig the election. What matters is, is that we're starting to stand up. We're starting to move. We're starting to find our legs. We're starting to build our muscle. We're starting to realize that we do have power, and we can work together, and we can take action, and that the naysayers are a pack of weak liars who have never had any successes in their life and who are upset and frustrated to see us beginning to have victories against tyranny. They don't have any respect for themselves. They don't have any vision. And they don't have any will. And they sure don't have any of the power that shines out of God's soul and energizes all life in the universe. They have wed themselves to death. And they will crumble, and they will fall, and for eternity, we wed ourselves to life, and to everything good, and everything that flows from it! It looks like the sand people did this all right. Look, the scaffy sticks, pants, the tracks, I never heard of them eating anything you've seen before. They didn't, but we are meant to think they did. These tracks are side by side. Sand people always ride single file to hide their numbers. These are the same Jawas that sold us our two sepia. And these, last point, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. But why would Imperial people find a Jawas? If they place the robots here, then they have learned to sold them to, and that would lead them back home. Oh, wait, Luke! It's too dangerous! You know this is not to pass away. For life is as the possibility. I heard a calling that was right for me. I prayed for strength for what's ahead of me. Fear of life. Then it passes to the dark side. Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. Sun will die and sun will die away. 
that you man will be able to say when you get back home. And you may thank God for it. Thirty years from now, when you're sitting around your fireside with your grandson on your knee, and he asks you, what did you do in the great World War II? You won't have to say, well, I shoveled shit in Louisiana. In the year of our Lord, 1314, patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen. And won their freedom. All right, Joseph Gibson podcasting here late night tonight. Just feel inspired to bring the old messages to tradition here. Let's talk uh, a little old here, militia. Hopefully the audio comes out for you okay, those of you that listen in the morning and listen to the archive. Uh, like I said, it's late night. What the heck? Hey, no callers. I love it. No callers. All right. Listen in. It is the later part of February, 1994. The enemy's plans, and when I say enemy, I mean internationalist plans, are far in excess of what they'd probably anticipated 10 years ago. They're behind schedule, but they're still very much along and into their original scheme. I want you to think back a little bit. Imagine it's midday. You hear your dog barking outside. You all know what your dog sounds like. Well, you know the dog's got something outside that doesn't seem quite right, so you grab your rifle, you and your friend run outside, follow the dogs out into the side of the house and then around the corner of the backyard and then in the backfield. About 100 yards away, somebody jumps out and shoots your dog. Well, you all know that that's a death threat. The individual immediately turns and prepares to fire on you. You realize even as that happens that other individuals pop up out of the shrubbery and the greenery and they prepare to fire on you also. So you fire back. Realizing that you're outnumbered, you turn to run and as you do, you're hitting the arm. And then as you begin to run farther, you're hit square in the middle of the back and you fall face forward, realizing it's your last breath. Is this Germany? 1940? Is this Russia? 1939? 1955? No. This is the United States of America this last year in Idaho. Your family recovers your body and puts it in a garage because, or a small shed because you're so remote that it takes hours to get to the nearest outpost. And while your family is checking on your body and your father reaches up, he feels a tug at his arm. He's been shot. As he returns to the house, your mother, his wife, holding the door for you with a 10-month-old baby in her arms, is hit with a 308 round which crashes through her face, and then passes through one of your best friends. Both of them fall to the ground, one mortally wounded, the other one seriously injured. Your father now bleeding quite heavily. He goes back to the porch and drags your mother back inside and puts her under the kitchen table. 
Nazi Germany, 1939, Soviet Russia, 1935? No. The United States of America, the 90s. We're in church with a group much like this right here, and you're talking, and you hear the cattle cars roll up. Out of the back doors charge a bunch of black-clad, ski-masked, coal-scuttle-helmeted individuals with assault weapons, real assault weapons. And they try to take your church and your home, on your own property, on private fight. The enemy is repulsed, but you are laid to siege. Is this the Warsaw Ghetto? No. Is this somewhere in the Ukraine during the Harvest of Sorrows? No. It's the United States of America in the 90s. Eventually, you and your comrades, after being laid to siege and having psychological warfare, conventional arms drawn against you, tanks, aircraft, are eventually overwhelmed by a mechanized force, and you are burned alive. Or, while burning alive, perhaps you take your own life because you felt that one, that pain was a little too much for you and you decided to make it a little easier for yourself, or your children, perhaps. Why didn't you surrender? Because you had the convictions of your beliefs. Nazi Germany? No. Russia? No. Communist China? Well, yes, there too. We're talking the United States in the 1990s. If you do not understand that your freedom is in peril, you need only for a change put yourself in the shoes of your fellow citizens. To quote an adage from our founding fathers, gentlemen, if we do not hang together, we shall surely hang separately. And a hundred Wacos and a hundred Ruby Creeks are to follow. And a march of black-booted, black-uniformed terrorists called federal forces or international police shall march across this nation and take it from you. Is this Orwell in 1984, which of course he wrote many years earlier? Is this a storybook? Is this fiction? This is reality that you've all seen on American television today. And many of you got a chance to see it for 51 days. It became an entertaining experience for many people who were very uneducated. It was not entertainment to me. And I'm sure that to you listening in the audience, it was not entertainment either. It is the reality of a government gone awry. Actually, I would call it a regime. It is not our government. Our limited constitutional republic has been usurped by a series of individuals who, if they have their way, will progress with the similar actions that we've just described time and again. Or if they can get away with it once, they will do it again and again and again and again. What kind of people are we dealing with that would do this? What kind of people are they overall? Well, let's look at some of their mottos. The MJTF police, their motto, they are the velvet glove on the iron fist. Well, I don't care who the heck you are, velvet glove or not, the iron fist hurts. Pretty or not, it can kill. Our enemy has a vast array of arms at his disposal, 
or its disposal, depending upon how you look at it. They have been planning for years, decades, half centuries, and centuries. It is not an accident. It is by plan. And because of this, with all of the convolutions that are involved with our aggressor and the way that he functions, he understands full well that his time is limited now. For the American people as a whole are beginning to turn their heads in one direction. Not backbiting amongst themselves, not fighting amongst themselves, but realizing that we have a common threat. And that common threat stands before us now. If we are to maintain freedom in this nation, if we are to protect our families, if we, are, if we are to ensure that the seed which we have planted, which we call our children, are to come to fruition, then we as a generation and as a people must make a stand now or die in slavery and chains. There should be no doubt in anybody's mind where we are headed. The enemy had hoped for this, though. And when I say enemy, again, I will repeat, the internationalists, for those people who like to nitpick. The enemy, abbreviated, expected riot, but will get reason. Expected reaction, but is now going to get response. Instead of riot and chaos, we shall have battle-hardened troops, and we shall destroy the enemy that stands before us. Not stones, but bullets. Aircraft, tanks, whatever it takes, and however long it takes, we are going to have to stand and fight against this aggressor. Now, does that mean that I'm looking for a place to die or that I'm looking to try and find a place for you to die? I'm not a pessimist. I am an optimist. It saddens me that we are going to have to do and that we have to discuss the issues that are here, but I would rather do it now than from a pit before they put a bullet to the back of my head. And I guarantee that if we lose, that we in this room and many other people like us all over the nation aren't going to be around much beyond their victory. This is a winner-take-all game. One side wins, they take all. We win. We don't want anything that they have. There is nothing that they possess that I cherish. But there is one thing that I do cherish, and that is my freedom. We draw the line now. There will be no more Wacos, and there will be no more Ruby Creeks. Many Americans across the country have already agreed to this. Now, a lot of people will challenge, well, what do we do, fight tanks? I didn't tell you to go out and fight tanks. Tank shows up, I wouldn't fight it. But if there is no crew, tank does not go down the road. And if a pilot doesn't make it to the plane, the plane doesn't get off the ground. We will have to fight on our terms with what resources we have. Will it be a home-by-Christmas war? Well, I'll tell you what, everybody's talked about that in the past. I will not even try to create that illusion for you. It is going to be a long and arduous task. Many of us may not live to see the end of it, but we are going to have to face it. I am willing to pay that price. That's why I stand before you today, knowing full well that there are many people who would like my head right now, I'm sure. But with that in mind, I have no choice but to forge ahead and continue with the task that's at hand. Now, 
some people, and I've heard this from out west from different, with different arguments, and we have many good patriots out west. We have many to the north, the south, and the east. There are millions. We're in communications with many of them on a daily basis. It is awe-inspiring to see. Well, we've heard, for instance, from out west, well, this won't affect me. They're not going to come to my door and take my gun. They're going to bother with all the other people. Everybody in their illusion believes it's going to be the other guy. Or in other words, the committee program. Everybody points to the right or the left, and it's a big circle. It's the other guy they're going to get. We're going to make a deal. A deal only exists when there are two sides. And again, I will remind you, there is but one if there is victory assured for them. And then there's no deal. Power corrupts. Absolute power absolutely corrupts. Well, taking it from the overview, to remind you where we all stand with the threat that faces us, at the lowest level we have the MJTF police. We've heard many arguments in the past year and a half about, well, the MJTF police doesn't exist, etc. It's now popping up publicly virtually at every corner of the nation. Publicly announced in Maryland, publicly announced in Louisiana, publicly announced in Washington State, Chicago, Florida, it is rearing its head everywhere. The multi-jurisdictional task force, its mission is to encompass and collect all local law enforcement to bring it under the iron fist. Remember that local law enforcement is the last defense that you have against tyranny, along with your county sheriff. Your county sheriff is to protect you and protect your constitutional rights. He is sworn to do so. He is governed by you as a voter. If the MJTF police, if FinCEN, if the Directorate of Central Law Enforcement become, become power, you will have absolutely no say in the future of your county, your township, your city, your village, your burg, your home. Now, beyond the MJTF police, we have FinCEN, F-I-N-C-E-N. FinCEN are foreign military and secret police and collection agencies brought in under a single umbrella. Not admitted to two years ago, we now have sufficient data to demonstrate the budget for the agency and the fact that they are interlocked with Interpol, the United Nations, and several other agencies that are international. They are virtually becoming the black shirts of this nation. Now a new one, under sub-Emperor Gore, is the Directorate of Central Law Enforcement. The Directorate of Central Law Enforcement will now encompass all major agencies and bring them together to create one fist. The Directorate of Central Law Enforcement encompasses FBI, DEA, ATF, Federal Marshals, Customs, the Treasury, with all respects. Bringing them all into one umbrella, they will be a virtual national secret police force a power the likes of which our founding fathers warned us time and time and time and time again. Washington, despite the fabrications that have been created or the rewriting of history, probably one of the, the greatest men that we've ever seen in this nation and ever will, an individual who was truly a sovereign of this nation, stated uncategorically that you trust no single group of men nor a single person with that type of power because power will corrupt. I wish they were here today. I wish we had them for two days. They probably, as we discussed last night, would probably be hard holding them back from going to Washington and shooting these people. 
or raising an army. If he had 48 hours, I can imagine what he would say. But many of the other founding fathers would have the same place here now, where they, could, they would see the corruption immediately. Now, the Directorate of Central Law Enforcement isn't the last here, and I'm sure that there are many others we haven't even heard of yet. I think it should be remembered that there are many tiers to this. But these are the key or the linchpins that they will use to cut wedges into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that they already have. In addition to that, United Nations Combat Forces. Even now, as we speak this day, we are hearing more and more about Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, Serbia, Somalia, Kampuchea, which is now Cambodia again. I love how the, map, you know, the maps flip-flop back and forth. And as we find out more, we find out how much more you as American taxpayers are paying on a daily basis, more and more and more. Bosnia's mission is to bleed white the American military machine and disperse it throughout the planet. Bosnia, Macedonia, Africa, by spreading American forces under UN cloak, under the beret, the blue helmet, or the blue hat, our commands will be separated. And while we certainly have over a million men in uniform, we will be the minority force with virtually every United Nations activity that takes place. What that means is this. If you are an individual military, military commander and you are patriotic, how do you get your troops back? If there's 11,000 of you here, 18,000 of you there, contrary to what they see you show in Hollywood, you don't have indigenous tanks, you don't have indigenous aircraft, you don't have indigenous ships. The best you might be able to do is bring back some of your troops by hijacking planes or commandeering military aircraft. But what you literally have is the active military force of the United States, the United States spread across the globe and weakened beyond belief. It's been accepted already that we cannot militarily support a number of formations in the field. In other words, two. We're talking about five, ten, fifteen, perhaps seventeen locations in which we have committed active military forces and we cannot properly support them if we go to war. What you might see is a number of corregidors. Gradually over a period of weeks, the radio is going silent because the forces no longer have the capability to fight or are overrun by foreign military aggression. One at a time, your daughters, your sons, your uncles, your aunts, your fathers, your mothers, dying overseas in stupid, senseless little actions for the sake of the international police. Accidents? Nothing in politics is accidental. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That person was a professional politician, as you all know. And he knew exactly what to say about politicians. And he knew exactly how politics runs. So I think we can take at least some, some semblance of belief from that as, as far as the, the reality of, of politics in the United States and globally. Now, the globalists, who are they? Who is it that's pulling the strings here in the United States right now? And, of course, they've always been here. Make no mistake about it. This threat is not something of this century. This threat has been with us for as long as this nation has existed. It is not new to you. It is not new to me. It is not new to our grandparents, our great-grandparents, or the Founding Fathers. From the moment that this nation was brought to power, a formidable force was paralleling it called the Illuminati. Now, there are arguments, plus or minus, about who created who. But the fact of the matter is this, that as soon as it was perceived by the monarchists, the imperium, 
that their monopoly was threatened. They had to conceive of a plan to bring the Americas and many other people who were getting these strange ideas about freedom in the back of their heads back into the mainstream of peasantry. With peasantry, you do nothing but follow. And you certainly don't have to worry about much as a slave unless you become an, uh, shall we say, a, an undesirable slave or perhaps uh, not economically maintainable, as in our health care plan that's coming up, I mean National Death Sentence Program, because that's what that is. Well, the monarchists back then with the Illuminati decided they had to have a counterforce. Its mission was to get back into the United States, or what we were calling the United States at the time, or these United States. In addition to that, we had several organizations that were progressively organized over a period of years, but one of them right now has many, many members in this existing regime, and that's the Rhodes system, Rhodes Scholars. When Rhodes created this, one of his missions was to offer back to England those assets which it had lost over a number of years and to bring the United States back under the British globe, the Iron Fist. Have they done so? Well, let me give you a point here. Uh, earlier this last month, a certain individual who was the President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, went to England to see his queen. He has now knelt down and been knighted by Queen Elizabeth, receiving due honors for his actions here in the United States. What does that tell you about your enemy? Comes full circle. Now, some people would say, and in fact, I've heard this many times before, that socialism is our enemy. Socialism is the problem. Well, socialism is a problem. Communism is a problem. Fascism is a problem. However, they are but illusions of the final solution that your enemy is, is going to implement here in the United States. Because socialism is not the final step. Socialism, if you look at a, a track of time, is but a way to consolidate force and power and energy so that single personalities might come together and take it over. If socialism is the final goal, I'd have to ask you all this. Why is it that in virtually every European nation, all of the traditional monarchical families of pre-1914 are now identified? Even on lifestyles of the rich and famous, we had a little blurb showing the original family line of France, and they haven't had a king for how long? The original family line of Russia, which has been identified, and in fact what was Yugoslavia, now all of the many little states, are back to where they were in pre-1914 configuration. And if you all remember, where did World War I start? Ah, thank you, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia. And from there, the war blossomed out and became a global envelopment that spanned from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from pole to pole, and changed the virtual face of the maps of every nation, creating the convolutions and the terrors that became the next two wars after that, including World War II, of course, which is the most important. Why, if we're going to socialism, would you need to identify monarchical family lines? because socialism won't be around for very long. To the monarchists, we are an aberration. We're a pimple, we're a bump, we're a strange track that they're going to push back in line. We're a spur that should not have existed. Or as one friend of ours said, what we are is a failed experiment. 
No, we aren't failed. We just realized our full potential, and we're going to go farther still. Eventually, we will build this nation up to greatness, and it will be done with the people. It will be done with the olive branch. It will not be done with the sword. It will not have to be done with oppression. It will not have to be done with terror. Example, have you noticed our enemy with the health care plan, which is just for your own good? Oh, yes. It's just for your own good, but of course, if you destroy your national ID, I mean, whoops, not national ID card, it's your health care card. But if you destroy your national ID card, two years in prison. If you do not have the card, two years in prison. We're only here to help you. Oh, gee. Again, if it is good, it will survive the light of day. It can come out in the open. If it is dangerous or evil, it fears the scrutiny of free men and women, and that's what happened with this health care package, for instance. It was all done behind closed doors. You didn't really need to know what was going on. Well, I challenge again, if it is good, it shall survive the light of day and any scrutiny by all of us. So then you've got to ask, well, what are they going to do to us, not for us? With the National ID card, I mean, oops, National Health Care card, which, of course, our Emperor, Emperor Blight, showed everybody. Remember? Did it right there in the House and the Senate. Got to see it. Got to have it. Remember that. But when he showed it to everybody, what he did is he demonstrated to you his power, at least his assumed power, because you gave it to him. You handed it over. You let him get as far as he's gone. And there's a basic rule of warfare when you are dealing with war, and that's what this is, economical, both economic, military, social, etc., is that if you are the enemy, the other side will take everything you're stupid enough to give for free. So that when it comes time to actually fight, you fight for key and crucial resources, and you do not expend your resources against frivolous or extraneous activities. That's what they're doing now. They're taking everything they can for free. Does this affect us down to the community level? Well, an interesting tidbit that was passed to me by John, which I'd like to bring up, they're priming the pump here in Hillsdale. And I will pass this on. This is the Hillsdale Daily News, Tuesday, February 22, 1994. There's an excellent little political cartoon here. But I'll read you some of the titles. Teacher tired of students rationalizing drug use. Drug issue not one for fence-sitting. We must go on the offensive. Are they saying, Mom and Dad, deal with this problem? No. After all, if you're going to get big government into everybody's home, you've got to convince the home that it can't take care of itself. And so what they have to do is lay the groundwork. The media is one of their tools. Upon laying the groundwork, demonstrating the problem, as we say, it's called thesis, antithesis, synthesis, create the drug problem, demonstrate the drug problem, and then come up with a solution that otherwise you as free American citizens and sovereigns would not accept. And so that is exactly what they have done. Does it trickle down, remember that term, trickle down to the lowest level? Well, absolutely, because here it is. Is it a national problem? Yes. Is it a state problem? Yes. Is it a family problem? More so than anything else.
if you do not deal with it personally, if people do not take responsibility, and I don't mean from the government, because the government told you, but because you have a moral obligation to take care of your own front porch, if we dealt with it at the lowest end, there's no way they could conceivably have the excuse at the higher end. Now, that doesn't mean there's a vast array of tools that they've pointed at you. Example, this is in the Christian Science Monitor, Tuesday, February 15, 1994. Cries against crime lead to proposal for regional prisons. Lord Vader's regional prisons. Regional? Well, I thought we had states. Well, that gets into this whole other rigmarole that we have called regional government. Will that affect you locally? Absolutely. Because incorporating this with law enforcement at this end, remember, local law enforcement ceases to exist. It becomes the MJTF police. Eventually, they will be brushed aside, and, oh, I guarantee a very aloof and unaffected law enforcement agency will be involved. It will also be a very dangerous law enforcement agency because it will not be able to answer the local citizenry. It will be isolated because it will be regional. How many of you have dealt with the state already? How much fun is it to try and communicate to the state and they're just in Lansing? The reason they need to go to regional government is because with regional government, you become even more isolated as a citizen with absolutely no say in government. By the way, did you elect your regional officials? No, because none of them are elected. They are directly assigned. They are directorateships. So again, they have circumvented the Constitution and the, and the Bill of Rights intentionally. There is no accident here. Long-term, essential planning to hit key points for free before you go and envelop a specific objective. Now, regional prisons, that's just one of many activities that they're involved in. For the MJTF, that will be regionally coordinated. By the way, your food will be regionally coordinated, and it is partially already. For all of you who are farmers, you would understand this right away. What else is regionally governed? Virtually every aspect of government at the federal level at this time. They have state liaisons, but they're almost ready to brush aside the states. Does this violate the Constitution? Absolutely. Well, I want you all, if you do, have it with you to pull out your liberty teeth. What I have here is a pocket constitution and bill of rights. Yeah, very good. At least one man here has it standing here. I understand we'll get more. But the point is this. In here it explains that no new states can be made by dividing a state nor by bringing several states or two states together. Well, I didn't know that was in the Constitution. Yes, it is in the Constitution, because the Founding Fathers understood collusion and conspiracy. And to ensure that no consolidated separate confederation would get together and usurp our Bill of Rights, they intentionally set up checks and balances. And this was one of the many checks and balances that existed to protect us. A series of states could come together and become a conglomerate and virtually rule the rest of the nation. The other problem they understood is that with isolated large government, there would be no input from the people, which is exactly what we're seeing now. Now, a lot of people would say, 
and I've heard this before, and I've heard this again time and time over. Well, they couldn't get away with that. I've even heard in government buildings most recently with the announcements of confiscations of firearms in Louisiana. They can't do that. They wouldn't let that happen. Well, who's they? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You are the they. You know, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Remember that? So we have a little document here, which we have also outside, and I recommend that everybody get a copy today. Please do, and make plenty of copies. This is the internal agenda, agenda for Handgun Control Incorporated. Now, I will remind you that when the Brady Bill was passed, it was what? The first step. If that's the first step, that implies, and when they say first, that means that you are on a path. What's going to happen when the next foot hits? And remember, that's only two steps. Well, if you want to find out, it's right here. But what I thought was most fascinating is one comment, and I will try to find it quickly so that I'm not wasting time here. What was only a dream 10 years ago can be a reality as early as this year. This entire agenda, they are anticipating the possibility of accomplishing before the end of this year. What does it include? Well, with regard to gatherings, I thought this was most fascinating because these are some of the most important. Because this, again, affects this document right here. Over a number of years, but specifically within this year, banning gun shows. Well, we all know how many of us are getting our firearms and the fact that that exists. Banning of military reenactments. Are any of you voyageurs who like to go to rendezvous? Well, I'm sorry. That is a paramilitary activity. Even if it's black powder, you are guilty of sin, you're out of here. It's a felony. Civil War reenactments, you're out of here. It's a felony. World War I reenactments, paramilitary operation, you're out of here. World War II reenactments, or any paramilitary training, all illegal. Now, some states have already implemented similar activities to this. This one I like. Article 31, banning unlawful the assembly of more than four armed individuals who are not peace officers or military. Since most hunting parties consist of four, we recognize the need to eliminate the currently legal assembly of shooters for paramilitary training or private lands. This is just one good suggestion for our elimination of, quote, gun culture from the American mainstream. You like bunny hunting and you all thought you weren't going to get touched because after all, with all those other people who had guns and you were going to make a deal. Remember, gentlemen, if you do not hang together, you shall surely hang separately. Make no mistake about it. Begin, the cur begin to curb uh, hunting on all public lands. Blood sports are an anathema to the civilized society. However, it has been a political, political reality that the hunters and their ilk have too strong a stranglehold on Congress. We feel that the impending defeat of high-tech assault killing machines will open the door, camel's nose in the tent, to restrictions. With a diminishing number of hunters, we feel that perhaps in five years we can open up much more of our country to campers and hikers and eliminate the threat to families out camping by lo locking up more restrictions as to what parcels of land will allow hunting. This will not infringe on sportsmen's right to hunt on private land initially. Get a copy of it. 
how will it affect you? These are your other liberty teeth. The only reason that this has any power whatsoever is because one of the checks and balances to ensure that nobody, that nobody would acquire enough strength was to have the firearms to ensure that it was backed up. They are interlocked. Just as assuredly as a link of chain. Break one, they fall. Does our enemy understand this? Oh, yes, he does. Does our enemy have patience? Oh, absolutely. If you are stupid enough to believe that disarming the American people is going to create liberty, you need only go back to the fact that who will possess all the arms? A central, single government. Power corrupts, absolute power absolutely corrupts. Where can they go from here? Well, I'd have to ask the same question again. What in the United Nations Charter can be offered to you as an American citizen if you have the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? Nothing. Zero. In fact, the point being, they will have to take away from your Bill of Rights and Constitution in order for the United Nations Charter to be implemented. Rights and Constitution in order for the United Nations Charter to be implemented. Example, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mr. Farrakhan in uh, Florida had a lieutenant who made several derogatory comments. Interesting. Now, he has the right to say whatever he wishes to say. Make no mistake about it. Obviously, he hit the wrong cavity and the wrong nerve. Yesterday and the day before yesterday, the Senate was to vote on a bill that would restrict our freedom of speech and our First Amendment rights. So yesterday, the Senate was to vote on a bill that would restrict our freedom of speech and our First Amendment rights. Was this an accident? No. Create the problem, demonstrate the problem, and also come up with a solution that would not be acceptable otherwise. That's the mission. With regard to the activities, remember, as was commented by an individual on C-SPAN two days ago, and it's amazing this even got out, but it was live so they couldn't stop him, he said nothing like this has ever been passed in the United States. Well, that's true, but obviously he's not up to speed because there are a lot of other things that have been happening in the last year and a half that have never happened in the United States either. Because of isolation in institutions like this, and because they are intentionally isolated, many components of the population have no inkling of an idea what reality is. The objective behind institutions are to channel and close the line of thought so that there will be no conflict with regard to other dogmas that might come in and open up or change or alter that particular cadre that you're creating. That's the mission of education facilities. It doesn't make a difference whose it is. Right, wrong, left, indifferent. They still serve the same purpose. Now, an example is this. Review of the United Nations Charter, collection of documents, subcommittee on the United Nations Charter, pursuant to S. Resolution 126, 83rd Congress, first session. This is a restricted document in virtually every university in the United States. 86 copies were originally made. Only two exist in private hands. This is one of the two. Both the Secret Service and the FBI tried to collect this document. Why? This is the document drawn up to abolish the United States of America. It is accessible here. If you request, specific photocopies can be made. And trust me, the only reason we still have this in our hand 
is because we've made thousands of copies. But otherwise, had they had their way, this would have gone into the furnace or the black hole, as Orwell said. Most colleges and universities are controlled by the Institute for Social Research, or at least all of their libraries are. The University of Michigan's libraries were taken over initially by the Institute for Social Research back in 1978 through 79. Progressively over a period of years, they have now accumulated virtually every library on campus. Oh, they don't restrict books on campus, do they? Bullshit. And I'll tell you how it's done. Live the collection, University of Michigan. Phoebe Courtney generated well over 15 texts and in fact is still producing books at this time. Originally, we took the bibliography, uh, bibliography from one text, none dare call it conspiracy. 64 specific books were looked up on our MTS system, and upon checking, we found that better than three-quarters of the text were in a specific collection. You cannot look at them, you cannot read them, you cannot photocopy them, and you will not draw them from the library. Now, this was back in 1989. We originally did this survey. Of the three-quarters of those books, in other words, approximately 42 that were originally checked with, that were in this collection that you now could not look at, today in 1993, all but two have ceased to exist. Yes, they do burn books, but they especially burn books that have knowledge in them. Frivolous text or side-bending text, in other words, diverting text, they will keep. But those which have to do with the substance of the issues we're talking about progressively are extracted and disposed of over a period of time. Now, the Institute for Social Research had only one, one, co one college library at the U of M campus that it had not enveloped, and that was engineering. By this next year, they will probably have the engineering school. And with that, the last of the texts that were not restricted will be, and then will be taken out. Is this a common practice? Yes. By the way, the Institute for Social Research is heavily attached to the Fabians. Anybody who's familiar with Fabian socialism? The Fabians, originating out of England, enveloped or created a series of programs in conjunction with Rhodes and a series of other individuals to again envelop the American education system, to channel the population, or as they said during the, about the turn of the century, they needed to dumb down American society both our higher education and our conventional education mechanisms. They did a very good job of it. Were it not for the fact, and this is one thing they did not anticipate, was the self-motivation and self-education on the part of many individuals, we would have lost much of our real history with regard to what was happening and the mechanizations of politicking in this country. Fortunately, too many copies of things are left laying around. Now, would somebody like to burn this? No, well, they could now. We wouldn't care. We've made so many copies that they can't find them all. And John can attest to that. In addition to that, though, we're constantly seeking out, and you should too, text, documents, anything and everything that are original copy. Disperse and separate them. Probably the best example of the dangers of consolidation are what happened throughout the history of the three great libraries that existed in the past, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Rome. Over a short period of centuries, all three libraries suffered major fires and destruction, which destroyed much of the written knowledge of the population of the globe. You, as protectors and as free sovereigns and citizens, have to ensure that this information is not consolidated and hidden and tucked away in rooms where it disappears. 
If it is true, it will stand the test in the light of day and need not be concealed or hidden. Well, their mechanization, how they've done this and what they've done, is here and in many other texts, and we've reviewed this before. Well, where are they going now? Well, we'll come back down to the tactical level and give you a little idea of what's going on in the country. I always like to refer to notes because I want to make sure that I get the words right. I hate to have somebody trying to repeat something that I've said or paraphrase it. In Amet, Louisiana, approximately three weeks ago, 130 sheriff's deputies, the ATF, approximately one battalion of Army Reserve personnel, active Army Reserve, the FBI, mixed al alphabets of other agencies, and four black helicopters possessed by the Customs Service, no markings, no identification to indicate that they are American resource, descended upon Amit, A-M-I-T-E, enveloped 15 to 16 city blocks. Any individual trying to leave was incarcerated for the duration of the activity. Any individual trying to enter to return to his home was immediately arrested. His car was detained or he was detained on foot. All individuals were searched. There was no concern for constitutional rights here. This was an occupation force. They then proceeded house by house, door to door. The total accumulated booty for 15 city blocks. We're not talking about some 15 houses or 15 rooms. 15 city blocks, a good portion of a community, netted over 100 firearms, which was their primary interest, the confiscation of arms. And this was house to house, door to door. Five rock vials of cocaine. Five. Count them. 36 baggies of marijuana, about the size of my fingers put together here. And a total of $350 in cash were accumulated. This activity took well over 10 to 15 hours. All individuals arrested in the first few hours of the activity were detained for the duration of the activity. Amet was one of the first four that took place. The next one was in Baltimore. A six-city block area, again in the last three weeks, on the same day, at the same time, was enveloped using National Guard forces from the state of Maryland. These forces then went house to house, door to door, room to room, confiscating all firearms and detaining all individuals, male, female, and children. The next activity took place in Chicago with a similar circumstance in the projects, again, federally controlled. The fourth took place in Washington State and was of a similar ilk. Again, five to six city blocks, not houses, not rooms, six city blocks with similar result. Again, I ask, was this Russia? Was this Communist China? Was this Europe? No, this was the United States of America. It's not down the road 10 years, 20 years. It's here in front of you now. But because of the boiling frog syndrome, everybody sits here and waits and watches it happen. We all understand how that works. If you want to boil a frog, you don't try to throw him into a pot of water. You put him in nice medium temperature water and turn the heat up slowly. He'll sit there until he dies. That's exactly what's happened here. Now, tactically, how are they going to operate inside the United States using MJTF police, FinCEN, or United Nations operations groups? Well, I'm going to pass this little report around, if I could. 
I want you to take a look at the photographs. This is just one small collection of intelligence data that was put together. We have photographs in virtually all over the country of similar activities taking place. The markers that are on the signs that you're going to see specifically identify routes of navigation. The township, the counties, nor the states have marked, marked any of these, these sites. There is a small write-up in brief that you can read with regard to these particular activities. However, in Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Alabama, Louisiana, California, Washington State, Maryland, Connecticut, Maine, Rhode Island, and almost all of the eastern seaboard, similar markers now exist, though some are more dramatic than others. What do they include? Well, traditionally, the first markers were identified, and as we discussed before, were about the size of this card and varied in configuration, but basically identify routes. They are on the oncoming traffic sign to your left, not on the sign that you are facing. The specific mission is to, for simplicity's sake, identify routes that individuals might use during activities here in this, in this country. What individuals? Well, we're going to send around another set of pictures. These are a very limited set but we have a videotape and we have other portfolios that are coming. This is from Louisiana. In the photographs that you are going to see here, 540 East German and Russian pre-deployment vehicles are located near Biloxi, Mississippi, 10 miles north on M49. They are all new combat pieces of equipment, ranging from chemical warfare trucks to infantry vehicles. There were also some armored personnel carriers which apparently have been moved. They are in close proximity to Fort Polk, which, as you will recall, last fall was converted to a United Nations training facility and is United Nations Training Command North America. There are now foreign forces here. If I could, I'm going to borrow our courier again. The name of the company that supposedly was coordinating this was Airmar. Airmar is kind of like Air America. You all remember Air America. They're involved in other uh, alphabet soup group. Central Intelligence Agency. Well, strangely enough, Airmar in these pictures is not located on private land. It's located in the DeSoto National Park, which is probably, quote-unquote, an international biosphere. In other words, the international bankers now possess it. It is not American resource. It is under United Nations control. In addition, a series of other sites have been identified near these vehicles, which are now possessing a large number of foreign military forces. One group has been identified as El Salvadoran. Another group has been identified as both Belgian with some Polish forces. Again, under United Nations control. I will remind you of Pathé Comitatus, which has to do with guidelines regarding military forces inside the United States. Each of our states is a republic. Remember, in the Constitution, it states uncategorically we will guarantee a republican form of government to each state in the Union. Well, strangely enough, under Posse Comitatus, not even the U.S. military can, can raise arms against the American people without at first an express exchange and command for a specific purpose anywhere in the country by military force. He has to override it, and he has to put his name to a document. No such overt document exists that we could acknowledge. Ah, but we have the United Nations Treaty, comrade. And I will remind you that what is good for the goose is good for the goosey. If you can go to somebody else's country and tell them what to do in their hometown, eventually somebody's going to turn around and eat your lunch. 
And despite how strong you might think you are, you are but one of many members constituting only 5% of the overall global population. You are nothing to the United Nations in reality. Ignorance is bliss and fatal in most cases. You are a co-signer and in fact are nothing but chattel property under most of the corporate entities that are these United States, now the United States with a capital U. That's how they look at all of us. Do they have the resource capability to do this? Yes. As we discussed earlier with the dispersion of U.S. military forces across the globe, we do not have the capacity inside the United States were it not for American militia, you know, the armed citizen, to repel any existing military force that might attempt activities here, including our own forces used against the American citizenry. Now again, if they are under United Nations Charter, and if they are under United Nations authority, they are not American forces. That's a mistake that's made from the beginning. We've already broken two milestones. In Somalia, U.S. forces for the first time came under direct United Nations control, didn't they? In Bosnia-Herzegovina, we are seeing now the next shift of the knife. Seventh Armor and several U.S. military forces in Europe are now directly under the command of NATO, but specifically under a German general, not an American general. This is a first and unheard of. And George Patton is probably turning in his grave right now. I guarantee. But the fact of the matter is this. If those forces are now under foreign command, they are no longer American forces. They are now sworn to the Empire. United Nations Command. If ordered to do so, they can be used anywhere in the United States at United Nations Forces' discretion. Again, the President has been set with Somalia. Somalia being a sovereign nation, despite the political politicization and the propaganda, was still a sovereign nation nonetheless, and they occupied it. And we still do. What's good for the goose is good for the goosey. What will shift or change with this? With Bosnia-Herzegovina, with Somalia and Macedonia, what you're going to see is a shift to the traditional borders of pre-1914. This will not take long to consolidate. It will ensure that there will be no competition for the EEC, European Economic Community. By eliminating Yugoslavia, which was not a great power, but was a strong industrial nation, they eliminated the possibility of a fresh young country coming into the EEC and competing effectively against them. Through clandestine monies and resources, they slit their throat. It's very straightforward. It also served multi-tier purposes, creating the precedent set for UN forces to intervene inside these nations. Now, what is the strength of UN forces inside the United States? The estimations, including reliable numbers, is approximately 300,000 total. It could be higher. We do not have an accurate count. In the last 48 hours at Biloxi, we've had a vast influx of foreign aircraft and foreign military personnel. And a series of other military bases, and we have some photographs here of those particular sites, a large number of foreign military forces have been entering over the last 48 hours also. Does this mean that we have to panic? No, it means that we pay attention and we have good patriots who are already watching to see what's going to happen there. Has the other side become aggressive? Well, in almost every case where public citizens have gone overtly to the gates and to the fences, they have threatened to shoot them in every incident so far. So we have a confrontational situation that exists right now. Probably by the next time that I speak, if not today, God, God please, 
We may have photographs that have been brought up from, uh, from Louisiana of the specific convoys and transports that are involved. Does the other side feel that they can get away with this? Why not? You let everything else happen in the last year. Bottom line, as I said before, they burned Waco. Everybody watched it on television and ate popcorn. Had no problem with it at all. Those were American citizens. It's no big deal to find another objective and attempt to do, to do this again. Remember, if they can get away with it, they will continue to actively participate and proceed on a track that they've created. Now, originally I worked as an intelligence analyst, as a counterintelligence coordinator from 1975 through to 1981, and I work now as, of course, with militia, different militia formations across the country, and we're inter-cooperating. If I were to sit on the other side right now, I know that many of us would be gnashing our teeth. And the reason I say this is because what we've experienced is a situation where they aren't sure how many of us are out there. They know that the American people are in motion. Oh, many of them are butt-cold asleep, make no mistake about that, and will remain asleep right up until the point where there are bodies in the front yard. Those are not your concern, nor are they my concern. Our biggest, our biggest and most important issue is to consolidate virtually all of the particular groups that are across the country, not to come together to some paramount central meeting, but to come together in mind and understand that we have a common enemy that is threatening the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. That is why we are identifying the threat that we're talking about here, because it all comes back to this. And the Republic is only as strong as those people are willing to support it. No, we're not taking questions. If need be, we will have to fight for it. When necessary, we will fight for it. Treaties do not override the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and specifically can be found. If need be, we will have to demonstrate that, and again, we'll have to first, as uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, use the ballot box, the soap box, and when need be, the cartridge box. And Theodore Roosevelt, of course, was a person who knew quite a bit about that also. Now, where else can we go to find information on the resources of the enemy? This came right out of Hillsdale College, out of the library, where they expunged it and took it off the, off the shelf. In this, this demonstrates, for instance, the elimination of certain activities and actions inside the federal government in 1988 and 1989. I will remind you again of a process, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Now, in other, types, in other situations where we've discussed how the street gangs would be used, and they are being used, they're not an accident, they're an intent, through a series of budget cuts, and we'll pass this document around also that you might take a look at it, the program slated for elimination in 1988 to create the condition, anti-drug abuse, state and local assistance, juvenile justice, crime control, regional information sharing, and Mario Cuban's program. Now, of all that were relevant, the least was, of course, the Mario Cuban's program. But if you'll understand what that did by bringing or infusing a criminal element into the United States, you'll understand the mission statement involved here. Again, we'll pass this around so we can take a look at it. By creating the condition and, of course, formulating with media assistance a series of actions, we create what is called crisis management. Crisis management 
is a situation whereby the thesis-antithesis synthesis program or Hegelian concept of government can be best implemented. Who is the first person to key the word crisis management? Henry Kissinger. Who was one of the first people to implement it? Jimmy Carter. Isn't that rather strange that a person from of, of Kissinger's background, supposedly, remember, supposedly a conservative, would offer a program, and yet the first person to implement it is a person that supposedly was a liberal? Again, look at the base or the root organizations involved. The people that were involved in this particular program were trying to create, through a series of actions, a national crisis by 1980 and 1981. We all know where that went. The next one was to stem from guns, drugs, drugs, guns, 1988-1989. And the most recent attempt now is the crime hysteria. It's rather interesting considering that nationally crime has gone down by 4% progressively for the last three years, and I don't necessarily believe all of their numbers, but even with fudging their numbers, they brought up, they, they boosted it as much as they could. The only reason that they had to continue with this is because they have no choice. They have a limited window of opportunity. What windows of opportunities are created by a series of these convolutions brought together to create existing experiences that people can relate to, both at our end, what we call the tactical end, and at the strategic end with politicians, to steer them into a particular activity. And they've been very successful in doing so. If you turn on two hours of CFR span, I mean, whoops, C-SPAN, you need only watch, and you will see at least two or three CFR members within that two-hour period. In fact, uh, here I think at this meeting we have probably the most concise collection of CFR members that are signed party members, cargoing party members, we might call them. Call them. These people are both are both Democrat, Republican, Independent. Many are not American. For instance, Council on Foreign Relations, 80% of it are foreign nationals, not American citizens. The Trilateral Commission, an offshoot created by the Rockefellers, is again only about 80%, is only about 20% American. The rest are foreign nationals. Much like the Federal Reserve, which is about as federal as Federal Express, and of course we all know that's a federal agency, don't we? The Federal Reserve is 90% run by foreign bankers now. That's not exactly federal, is it? May not necessarily have the best interests of the United States, does it? comrade. Ah, but on the other hand, as Andrew Jackson said, after he routed them out the last time, the most dangerous creature that we have to deal with is the international banker with this particular situation. Not that he has any allegiance to any flag. He doesn't. He is an internationalist. And why do you doubt him? He will tell you himself. The illusion is that you ignore his writings. It is best for us to delve deep into the writings of the aggressor and study and understand what his objectives are, what his mission is. For that reason, over a culmination of many years, that's how this came about. Why this wasn't made public and why they have to destroy the copies that are available is very fascinating. Because again, what are they afraid of? Well, what they're afraid of is that eventually people will understand and accumulate enough knowledge and data, especially intelligence background, that they might be able to identify both the threat the resources, and the capabilities. Once you do so, you can formulate a response. As I said at the very beginning of this, not a reaction. Crisis management dictates that you create just that, a crisis. Avoid at all costs. Sensibly respond, 
organize in advance, which is one of the things that most people are certainly not going to cooperate with, I will remind you of an old adage. Where man-made and natural catastrophes are concerned, the majority is always wrong. Bottom line. So with that in mind, of course, everybody else who might be discussing rationally, certainly not writing and raving, but using, again, the aggressor's material, is going to be derided, if at all possible, because the only option they have is to attack the messenger, certainly not attack the material. If you have garbage going in, the only thing you're going to get is garbage out. If you purge the libraries, that's all you get, garbage in, garbage out. What resources are there on our end? What can we do to cooperate or participate with activities? Well, first of all, I do not recommend, nor would I suggest in any way, shape, or form that you join any large organizations. Just to reverse. The smallest and best unit is at the personal level. Wives, family, relatives, best of friends. You have to be able to look into the eyes of the people that you know and know full well that you can trust them. That's always been the strength of the United States because we are independent sovereigns, not slaves following a small or chosen few. By being able to independently decide and protect one another, you are capable of mutually defending one another. Why, again, do they need the weapons? Rule number one. When Lexington burned, Concord knew that it had. By the time the Federalist forces in Redcoats showed up in Concord and began to burn and pillage there, 10,000 patriots had moved and were effectively able to engage and destroy and rout those foreign forces that were beginning to pillage the real estate. So it happened then, so it has to happen now. Example, when I talk about pillage, by the way, the confiscation laws. Is there anywhere in here that allows for the confiscation of private property. No? Thank you. I didn't think there was. Is there in the Communist Manifesto the right to private ownership of land will be abolished, Article 1, Communist Manifesto. A graduated national income tax to strip from the general population usury wealth, second plank, Communist Manifesto. Nowhere in here does it allow for that, nor does it allow in any way, shape, or form for a direct tax of that type. That's what your enemy's afraid of, is because once you realize exactly what he's doing and the fact that most of it is an illusion, then you're going to get angry. And the American people are a very terrible force to be reckoned with when they are angry. The Japanese found out the hard way. Gentlemen, I fear that all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fit him with a terrible resolve. The heads are all turning in one direction now. Riot amongst black and white cannot be allowed to take place. I've talked to many black groups. I've talked to many Indian groups. And for the same reason, I will talk to all corners of the nation whenever possible and explain to you this. Step back 10 paces, look up on a 15-degree angle to see who's pulling the puppet strings. They want riot. They expected confusion. We shall give them response. Level-headed, 
We shall put the fires out on each of our porches, and then we shall deal with the threat of quitting. That is the first, best, and only defense, and this more so than anything else. So again, where can we find data, or how can we come together without necessarily joining a lot of clubs? Well, a lot of people have generated a lot of data on their own. And the photocopy machine, I'm sure, will be banned as soon as the new regime has total power. I think you all know why. One page, very concise. It's free. Take it. It's yours. Well, that can't be happening. Well, good. Then go and research it yourself. Why waste my time? If you doubt me, good. Go and look. And when the librarian asks you, well, sir, why do you want to look at that book? Well, there's nothing in that book that you want to read. Then you got to ask yourself, why it is I need an editor to tell me what to read? You see what I mean? Now, other Patriot Reports, as in this one, Patriot Report, Present Truth, P.O. Box 122, Ponderay, Idaho, that's P-O-N-D-E-R-A-Y, Idaho, 83852. It is one of a dozen different organizational publications. I would have it sent to a single location and everybody share it. There's about a hundred other lesser organizations, a thousand, two thousand, two million. From day to day, we are finding that, again, as I said, the American people are organizing on their own. They don't need a central mechanism, a central organization, and we do not want it. Most everybody here, because they're institutionalized, is based upon the pyramidal system. Well, everybody also knows that if you want to destroy a mechanism, you don't need to decapitate it, or as you see the capstone, take it off, the mechanism dies. The American system was not originally set up that way. That was the strength, the foundation that we have as a people. By being spread out and organized well across the nation in many ways, and in every group and with every, every, every element of our people, from young to old, from poor to rich, whatever, you'll find that many walks of life are involved in what we're doing, all walks of life. It's a lot of fun. In fact, we have a great deal of fun with this. We have to laugh sometime. It's a serious situation. You will find that it is not that difficult to relate to the people that you need to find when you, when you find them. But it's not going to be that difficult. You're going to actually find a bit of relief. You're going to find a weight come off your heart. I've seen that. Because most people who have been out there said, well, I'm alone. I, I could see this, but I didn't think anybody else thought this way. Once you allude to somebody else openly and freely as a sovereign, you will find very quickly that other people will step forward with you. Again, that's the strength of this nation. That's why we've succeeded so well. You can't hide in the shadows. You can't skulk in the darkness. What scares the enemy the most is the fact that we can stand here in the light right now and do what we're doing. That's the difference between free men and slaves. The only person that I fear is my creator. I do not bend my knee for anybody. I will not bow to anybody. I am an independent sovereign capable of making my own decisions, and I will do so. Now, and boy, it gets exciting for me. What all is happening in different parts of the country? Well, we know that Fort, that Fort Benning has military activity taking place on a regular basis, but we're seeing a large influx of foreign military forces. Fort Bragg, foreign military forces. 
We also know that Fort Dix was transferred by George Bush over to UN Authority and is now a UN military facility, at least in partial. That one of the two prisons that are established there are an international prison, not a national prison. One of the sites is run federally and is one of the regional prisons. In addition to that, we see that across the Dakotas, North and South, Montana, Idaho, and Washington State, a large proliferation of, of foreign training forces who have also filed paperwork, that's how we track them down, filed paperwork with the state to utilize the facilities so that they could encamp their troops. Strangely enough, they're still going through the motions even though they don't really concern themselves with them all that much. In the south and southwest, from California to Texas, we are seeing a number of foreign forces positively identified at Fort Ord. The most recent report states that up to 75,000 foreign military forces were brought in over the last month and a half. Fort Ord has been a training facility, but I will remind you that as with Fort Dix, which was planned for closure, Fort Ord is also proposed for closure, and in fact would then or could then very easily be transferred over to international operations. In addition to that, of course, we know Fort Polk, in which we have some very interesting pictures of both women, children, and male adults in civilian clothes wearing the Miles laser gear so that they could practice using rifle marksmanship amongst the civilian population to confiscate, sort, and separate. This was in also local news publications. One of the things that should be remembered, as we said very early on here, is regional government. Why do I use that term? That's their term. With regional government, they've divided the rest of the mechanism up, though. All of the country up, including the media. That's why they've divided the information so that it is not picked up by the AP. And if it is picked up by the AP, we still have discretional editors who make sure that your newspapers don't see it. One comment made by many of our friends going overseas is that newspapers have generally become pavlum anyway. If you've seen one in Germany, you've seen one in the United States. And the most important thing on this planet that you should be worried about is the fact that a man's private parts were cut off. Yeah. Oh, that's not the most important issue. The most important issue is a tire iron, or I'm sorry, a steel rod, to the side of a ice skater's leg. Oh, well, that's not really national news either. But what does it do? It's kind of like bread and circuses, or a diversionary action. In other words, watch this hand, watch this hand. Whoops. I'll be quite honest. A man's private parts being cut off is not national news for two weeks on the front page with headlines this big. But it is one of the traditional key tools that's used for diversion called sex. And they've become so crude and so rudimentary and they feel that the American population is so dumbed down that it is very simple and straightforward to manipulate people with regard to that. And I will remind you, what was the most important issue? When Desert Storm started up and people were laughing when I was at work, I said, well, we're ready for a big war here, aren't we? Oh, what do you mean by that? The most important issue when Saddam Hussein was invading, was invading Kuwait was what? Zsa Zsa Gabor slaps a cop. And it was on the front page for three days at the top of the Detroit News and Detroit Free Press. Now, I will warn you about something when I was intelligence. First of all, we called the media prostitutes. Forgive me, ladies, but that's the only term that we use. We use them for photo intelligence, and even then they've learned to try and, try and crop data and change it. But we learned to use their photographs, and we learned to pick through most of the garbage that they generated. They've gotten worse. They're more subtly centralized and controlled. But we call them the prostitutes because they work for money, certainly not for, for any patriotic purpose. 
everybody has a paycheck, but in this case, they change as needed whatever story it is that they're generating. When needed, they have been used appropriately to divert and allow for someone to consolidate his resources in Iraq, to divert while somebody consolidates their forces in Somalia, or in Central, a Central Asia, or in Central Africa, or wherever. Diversion. And again, the more frivolous the headline, the more concerned that I would be about what's actually happening, or as I said before, what are they doing to us now? And if honestly you're worried about what will this do to the world of figure skating, then obviously you need to go back to the education pool and we need to start working on you. Figure skating is important to the people who are in figure skating and is certainly not a, shall we say, a national pastime at best. So with all of this understood, then where will we go? Well, over the next few weeks, and probably in the next week, you're going to see a series of announcements both from MJTF Actions in Maryland and Connecticut. These will include an expansion of the hostile search and seizure activities. How do we know this? Well, everybody seems to forget five weeks ago when Mr. Ben uh, Mr. Benson came on live television and explained to you all how he was going to use house-to-house -house search and seizure. On C-SPAN and CNN, and also some local programs, you will have observed that Janet Reno was identifying the fact to one particular press conference, which is taped, of course, we tape all these fun things, that the house-to-house -house search and seizure program that had been employed locally was going to be taken across the nation. Now, I don't know about you, but number one, I see a blue beret or I see another black uniform, and I see especially with no markings, that's the worst case scenario. Anything near my yard, in my yard, around me, around me, that's war. I understand what the ramifications of it is. I fully understand the ramifications of what I will have to do, and I have no qualms about it whatsoever. We have drawn the line, and it is finished. And if I'm the only one that goes, so be it. But we will. So Janet Reno has already said publicly, Mr. Benson has already said publicly, but what fascinated me about the last news conference, the very last one, they were nervous this time. Lloyd Benson has always exuded a tremendous amount of confidence if you've ever watched him in the media. Have you ever noticed that? He wasn't confident this last time. Mr. Benson may have finally realized that with regard to sharks, they eat their young. Like piranhas, too. Mr. Benson and Mrs. Mrs. Reno are expendable. For the first time in American history, we have an associate attorney general. Why? First of all, ask yourself who the associate attorney general is. Well, guess what? That's the man that Hillary and Bill worked for before they got into the Oval Office. Now that's strange. Why create a political position like that? Normally we worry about these shenanigans and they're screamed about in the media. The Associate Attorney General has virtually fallen off the face of the planet and receives no coverage whatsoever. So I have to ask myself again, what's going on here, okay? Janet Reno could probably be perceived, especially after the Waco situation, as the Ernst Rome of this, of this administration. If need be, as an expendable shark, she will be used to her fullest, and with an associate attorney general sitting in the wings. She can be used as an effective scapegoat, pushed off to the side, and the associate will then step forward. Now, this is not unlike a situation that took place from 1933 to 1938 in Germany, or from 1921 through 1929 to 31 in Russia. 
Molotov consolidated his power effectively by eliminating both cohorts and by brushing aside all subalterns below him. Both the number two and the number three man in the Justice Department resigned in the last two weeks and there have been no replacements. What you have is a consolidation of power. It will take but a short period of time for whoever it is that's going to come to the top of the, uh, I'm sorry, we call the septic tank, whoops, the pyramid, for that person to kick aside whoever it is that's in the way. Janet Reno is the only person that's in the way of the associate attorney general at this time. Once this action takes place, there will be no individual in any tier below able, able of interfering with the attorney general's activities. And certainly the Congress and the, the Congress is generally weakened at this time and not able to respond properly. Well, considering that we have search and seizure laws, considering that we have confiscation laws, which, by the way, somebody mentioned the other day, were changed. No. The confiscation laws were not changed over the last three months. The only part that was changed is that when I come to take this man's home, I notify him that I'm going to take his home by mail. And then I come and take it anyway, and in 10 days it's mine. So nothing has changed. Have the booty laws changed? Oh, the booty laws. Anybody remember those? Well, if you are part of the conspiratorial faction, oh, I'm sorry, the law enforcement mechanism who wants to confiscate your home, then you get a percentage of the cut or whatever they're able to acquire from it. If you come into a person's home and you want their VCR, you can take it with you. If you want their camcorder, you take it with you. If I want his shoes, I take it with him. It's that simple. Anything that is there that is property is confiscated and acquired. Is this Nazi Germany 1939? Is this Molotov or is this Molotov's Russia of 1920 or 1930? No. This is America in the 1990s. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's event. We're glad you're all here, and we are eager to get started. Can we trust the New Testament? Have there been changes to the text of the Bible? Some believe that the text has been corrupted and is therefore unreliable. But is this true? Our speaker this evening will address these questions and more. My name is Abraham Schwartzrock. I'm a junior majoring in physics and a student member of the Ratio Christi chapter here at SDSU. And I'd like to welcome you to our fourth annual Veritas Forum at South Dakota State University. Welcome. Along with the lead organizer, Ratio Christi, we have the Navigators, Crew, InterVarsity, and Equip Campus Ministries as tonight's Veritas Forum partnering student groups. We're furthermore glad to host this fall's forum in conjunction with the SSU Department of History, Political Science, Philosophy, and Religion. If you saw, I, I had to check the title, check my notes, happy to the title, that's so you know it's the Department of Substance. This evening's Veritas Forum is a lecture to be followed by a moderated Q&A. We invite everyone to ask questions at the mics after the lecture. A word on the Veritas Forum. Veritas is Latin for truth, so we're here tonight for a real discussion connecting truth to our hardest questions and our deepest beliefs. 
For those here who would identify as Christians, we hope that you will be challenged to examine your faith with intellectual honesty and rigor. For those who come from another faith perspective, we hope that you likewise will be challenged by tonight's lecture and will examine your faith perspective with intellectual honesty and rigor as well. The Veritas planning team aims to create events that are relevant, thought-provoking, and engaging to people of all backgrounds and beliefs. And we ask for your help with that. Please uh, note the survey card of an appearance very similar to this, which should have been placed in your seat unless you're one of the unfortunate few for whom these ran out in the back. You might uh, scour for an open seat, which probably has one later, because we'd love to get your feedback. We'll provide a time to fill these out, and that will be towards the end of the uh, event tonight, and ushers will proceed to collect them. Lastly, if you want to continue the discussion after tonight's forum, you are invited to stick around for snacks and drinks out in the foyer. You can also visit our Ratu Christie meeting this next Monday, not Native American Day. We will meet every Monday that there are classes at 5.30 p.m. in Dactronics Engineering Hall, room number 317. We'd love to have you join us this semester as we are discussing topics related to those of this event. The title of this semester's focus is The Historical Argument for Jesus. Now, I'd like to introduce our moderator, Dr. Michael Burhau, for this night's proceedings. Dr. Burhau is actively engaged with our lead sponsor, Ratio Christi, and is a lecturer in philosophy and religion here at SDSU. His research is primarily in the philosophy of religion and science, and he is the author of a book entitled Distilliology, a Philosophical Assessment of the Problem of Suboptimal Design in Biology. I can see your faces are simply alight and dancing with wonderstruck curiosity at the prospect of being regaled by that work. So I'll inform you that it's scheduled to be published with the publisher Pickwick in 2019. You know, maybe this is uh, more of a stern crowd and they're biting at the bit to uh, give him a harsh and scathing critique. Either way, I'll be on the lookout in 2019 for that work. Would you please join me in welcoming Mike Burhau as he introduces tonight's speaker. Wow, um, I don't know if I should thank you or not, but thank you for that uh, introduction. Um, I'm also happy to be uh, here tonight um, and I'm glad that all of you um, have been able to come and join us. I will be uh, helping moderate uh, tonight's discussion, that's my role. Um, and so one of the things I want to encourage all of you to do um, is as you're listening to Dr. Wallace uh, to be taking notes and thinking of uh, questions that you could ask him um, after his lecture. Um, as Abe mentioned, uh, there will be a way to submit your questions uh, via your phones. Um, but there's also going to be uh, mics going around during the Q&A time, so if you want to ask questions in person, uh, you can do that as well. Tonight's speaker is the founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He has traveled to 35 countries and has examined hundreds of thousands of pages of unique 
handwritten manuscripts in dozens of libraries, monasteries, and private collections throughout the world. He is also the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, where he has served for more than 30 years. He has written, co-authored, or contributed to more than three dozen books, and has been a consultant for several different Bible translations. His exegetical syntax of the New Testament is the standard intermediate advanced New Testament Greek grammar in the English-speaking world, and this grammar has been translated into more than a half a dozen languages. We are very glad that he has been able to join us this evening. Would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Daniel Wallace. So he started this, and about uh, 20 minutes later, 
There was a knock at the abbot's door. Holy Father, I see some discrepancies in these manuscripts. Uh, have you got some older ones that I can compare? So the abbot thought, well, yes, we do. They haven't been seen in some time, but I can take you to another part of the uh, library, and you can see some of these older uh, manuscripts. And so he looked at those, and about 20 minutes later, there's another knock at the door. And Andrew says, Holy Father, there's still some discrepancies here. Do you have some older ones that I could look at? And these are the bylaws that they followed in, in how they conducted themselves at this monastery. And so the abbot sized him up and he said, you know, young man, I'm going to take you to a place that I've never taken any of the current monks to before. But I'm going to trust you to uh, take care of these documents. So he goes down this labyrinthian path that's subterranean in the library through several locked doors and takes him to the room where the original manuscripts of this particular monastery were. And Brother Andrew starts copying out the actual original document and uh, makes a copy of it. And about 10 minutes later, there were about 20 different hands pounding on the abbot's door. The abbot opens the door, and it's all the rest of the monks. And they said, Holy Father, this new monk has, has gone berserk. Uh, he's down there on the table, and he's weeping and gnashing his teeth, and he's pounding on the table. You've got to come see him quickly. So they all scurry down and see uh, Brother Andrew. And Andrew's saying, they left out the letter R. How could they do that? They left out the R. And the abbot thought, my gosh, this guy really is anal. And then Andrew said, the word is supposed to be celebrate. <laughs> you guys still haven't gotten it yet, have you? It's, I think we have some uh, Indus here. Indus, uh, Indies, Undies, is that what you want to call them? Undies? North Dakota University, Undies, underwear, whatever. Anybody from North Dakota here? Okay, I'll try to tell my jokes more slowly for you then. <laughs> All right, the North Dakota bison, right? Okay, undies. Well, we're asking the question, how badly was the text of the New Testament corrupted? And the fact is that even a small error can have some rather large implications. So I want to start with some uh, quotations from various scholars, and we'll start with Dan Brown, the great scholar who wrote Da Vinci Code, and what he has to say about the Bible. He has Sir Lee Teabing say the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Well, we've all heard that. Many of you have said that. The Bible has been translated and retranslated so many times, how can we possibly get back to the original text? Well, it's not just Dan Brown who says this in a novel, but Kurt Eichenwald, who is a Dallas native, wrote in uh, December 23rd, 2014, in Newsweek, which was a decent uh, uh, journal before, he wrote, the Bible so misunderstood, it's a sin. And here's what he has to say. These, these journals, magazines, uh, television uh, shows, interviews on the radio, this kind of thing about the Christian faith, where it's an attack on the Christian faith, always seem to come out right around Christmas and Easter the two times when Christians are thinking more about what they believe than at other times, and so the media tends to try to uh, dissuade them from that opinion. So in the section, playing telephone with the Word of God, again, this was in Newsweek, 
Eichenwald says, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I. Well, probably all of that is true so far. And neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. This sounds perhaps like a bit of an exaggeration to me. And the reality is that what Eichenwald did was he was playing telephone with the scholarly material that he had and didn't read it carefully and ended up doing the telephone game with the sources he had. I'll get to the, one of the major sources, the major source here in just a minute. But it's not just novelists and journalists who are making claims that we can't possibly get back to the original text and it's to- totally corrupted. We can't tell what it originally said. C.J. Werleman has also said this. Uh, he's uh, an atheist, and his first book was God Hates You, Hate Him Back. Now, I think that's kind of an ironic title for an atheist, don't you think? I mean, shouldn't it be something like, nothing hates you, hate nothing back? If he's an atheist, you guys are still a little slow on getting this. And the rest of you just, anyway. Well, his second book, Jesus Lied, he was only human. Here he is uh, hooked up to a lie detector. And what he has to say is this. We do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The originals are lost. We don't know when and we don't know by whom. What we have are copies of copies. In some instances, the copies we have are 20th generation copies. Well, we've heard from a novelist, a journalist, an atheist, and now from a leading Muslim scholar who's a popular apologist in Britain, M.M. al-Azami. And in his book, The History of the Quranic Text, where he compares it to the Old and New Testament, he says this. The Orthodox Church, being the sect which eventually established supremacy over all the others, stood in fervent opposition to various ideas, also known as heresies, which were in circulation. These included adoptionism, the notion that Jesus was not God but a man, docetism, the opposite view that he was God and not man, and separationism, that the divine and human elements of Jesus Christ were two separate beings. In each case, this sect, the one that would rise to become the Orthodox Church, deliberately corrupted the scriptures so as to reflect its own theological visions of Christ while demolishing that of all rival sects. If Al-Azami is correct, then that means that Christians who believe that the New Testament originally taught that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man are dead wrong, and it's been uh, overhauled many times, but especially in the 4th century when Emperor Constantine became the first Christian emperor and he legalized uh, Christianity. But these guys are not scholars of the Bible. Their primary source, I think, although there, there, there could be several others, are, is Bart Ehrman. And he was here, what, just last week, wasn't he? A week and a half ago? Bart and I go back, way back. We've been friends for 36 years. I met him in his first year in the Ph.D. program at Princeton Seminary, and uh, we're we're friends. Um, In his book, Misquoting Jesus, which was his first really popular book, he says a few things about the Bible. Now, what's ironic here is that 
it's, uh, it's the story behind who changed the Bible and why. It's all about the New Testament. But the background behind this medieval scribe is actually Hebrew, which is what the language of the Old Testament is written in, not the New Testament, and it's upside down. But Ehrman didn't have anything to do with that. He's, he's quite competent in Hebrew as well as Greek. But here's what he had to say. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals. Or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. That sounds like Werleman. It sounds even like uh, Eichenwald. Ehrman, though, is a bona fide New Testament textual scholar or textual critic. He studied under Bruce Metzger for both his master's degree and his Ph.D. at Princeton Seminary, and Bruce Metzger was... Uh, probably the best textual critic of the New Testament in the 20th century. And that's actually Bart's opinion of him. I, I think he's probably right. But he also says at the end of his book something that sounds like al Azami. The more I studied the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, the more I realized just how radically the text had been altered over the years at the hands of the scribes. It would be wrong to say, as people sometimes do, that the changes in our text have no real bearing on what the text means or on the theological conclusions that one draws from them. Well, that's really a primary source, but there are others who say something similar. But as we begin this study, what I want us to note is that we have some people that have this radical skepticism that really gets inflated when it gets even beyond uh, Dr. Ehrman. So that they're saying, You've never read the Bible. I've never read the Bible. It's been translated so many times as if each time it's translated, the older translation is thrown away. Every time a manuscript is copied, they must have burned that first uh, copy. Some attitudes that if they just thought about it for five minutes would realize are completely false and certainly not in line with all of the historical evidence that we have. There's two attitudes, though, as we look into this data that I want us to avoid as we begin this. The first is radical skepticism, which we've already seen some quotations from. The second, though, is absolute certainty. And that's an attitude that Christians especially, and I suspect many of you here tonight are Christians, uh, are susceptible to. There's a group that I've seen in Texas and in Ohio, and I heard that you have some here in uh, South Dakota as well, who believes so strongly that the King James Bible is the only real holy Bible. It's the only word of God, and anything that deviates from it, even in one word, is, is of the devil or something along those lines. I've actually heard people say, both in Ohio and Texas and no place else, but maybe I'll hear it tonight in South Dakota, with all seriousness, they'll say something like, if the King James Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. Well, when I get that topic in Dallas, I decide we need to pitch the conversation at a level that they can understand. So I say, well, how about them cowboys? You know, that's, just, that's where we have to go from there. The problem is that the average Christian, regardless of the translation that you use, tends toward this attitude of absolute certainty as well. You might take to church the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the NIV, or you might use uh, the CSB or the NLT. There's all sorts of acronyms of uh, Bible translations that are available nowadays. And you might think this is the Word of God in every single detail. Now, if you're a Christian, 
you should believe, most likely, that the Bible is the Word of God. But is it in every detail? Is every word in that translation the Word of God? My response to that would be, of course not. And the reason is because of a couple of things. First of all, we're dealing with translation. No two languages map exactly alike. So you're going to have words that just can't be translated exactly the same way or the same uh, way every time in another language. The syntax is different between two languages. There's so many differences between languages that unless they're very, very close sisters of each other, there's going to be a lot of changes in terms of how you have to translate it to get the idea across. That's why it's been said there's always something lost in translation. But the second reason is that the text that is actually being translated changes over time. In 1984, when the NIV came out, it, it soon became, in about 10 years, the most popular Bible in the history of the world. The number one most popular Bible before that was the King James, and it took about 270 years to get to that place. But the NIV, I should say that 270 years before another one was published that uh, sort of tried to rival it. But when the NIV came out, it took just 10 years to uh, actually beat the numbers, I understand, of the King James Bible. However, it came out again in 2011. There were adjustments made. There were a lot of changes to the wording, and there were also changes to the text that was being translated. So which one is the Word of God in every particular? Some of you who are Christians have this attitude of absolute certainty when you really ought not to. It's not historically sensitive, and it's not sensitive to what translations are all about. We're going to figure out where between these two attitudes we really should land, and I'll give you plenty of evidence uh, to discuss this tonight. I hope there will be some lively questions. There's four questions that we want to answer, so two attitudes to avoid, four questions to answer. How many textual variants are there? I'll even define what a textual variant is. What kinds of textual variations are there? That is, are they the kind that... Are the difference between celebrate and celibate, are they something that's far less significant, far more significant? What kinds of variations? What's the nature of these uh, differences? What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? This, of course, is something that Al Azami and others have said that, gee, the, the, the early church just corrupted the copies of the New Testament that they had, and we can't tell what the original said, but it certainly doesn't affirm things like the deity of Christ in the original. And finally, kind of the capstone question of all of this is, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? Now, if you're trying to figure out where we are in the lecture, this is still pre-preface. I'm almost to the preface now, though. Okay. We have another preliminary question to ask, and that is, don't we have the original New Testament manuscripts anymore? Here's a painting of uh, Jerome who translated the Greek and Hebrew uh, Old and New Testaments into Latin. He created the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, and he always went around with a human skull to remind him of his own mortality. Perhaps a bit morbid, but I've followed in his footsteps, and I have a skull on my desk at home. It keeps children out. It's a good thing that, you know, so... I do love my grandchildren, but not in my library. So, anyway, don't we have the original New Testament manuscripts anymore? No, we don't. They all would have turned to dust within a century of the final compilation of the New Testament, I'm, I'm quite convinced. Why would that be? Well, first of all, they were written on papyrus, ancient form of paper. 
And papyrus, even though it was more durable than our modern paper, still could not last forever. In fact, the only papyri that we have discovered that have any text on them at all have been in the driest possible climates like Egypt or the Dead Sea, some other places like this where we do see some papyri. But in other parts of the world, they haven't lasted. Not only that, but these New Testament books, 27 different books, would have been copied and copied and copied. And so someone coming from Corinth to, to Rome, he has uh, a servant, and he says, hey, my servant is, is uh, literate, and he'd like to copy out this text that you've got. I understand that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. I'd like to get a copy for myself. So while the servant comes and copies this out, he's having exposure to that original manuscript and more and more people just did this uh, as an occasional thing. Finally, we get professional uh, scribes that came later. But what that did was it meant that the originals would have been copied many times over, not just one copy going to the next generation to the next generation, but several people would have copied the originals. But because of that, those originals would have worn out, and I'm convinced within a century they would have all uh, just turned to dust. So we don't have the originals anymore. Well, what if all the manuscripts that we had, though, were exactly alike? If they were all exactly alike, we'd, we'd say, well, we guess that that's probably what the original says, but we really can't tell. Like with Muslims and the Quran, they claim, many Muslims claim, that every copy of the Quran is exactly like every other copy. That actually is not true. I've seen copies of the Quran that are different from each other, and they also uh, have erasures that have been changed several times, frankly, at times. So our manuscripts do not agree with each other completely. Not only that, but there are no two New Testament manuscripts that agree word for word. There are not two that do this. The two closest we have from the first millennium disagree between six and ten times per chapter. You extrapolate that out over the whole New Testament, which would be about 260 chapters, that's a couple thousand differences for the, first, the two closest old manuscripts. So precisely because of the disappearance of the original and because of the discrepancies among the copies, we have to do what's called textual criticism to arrive at the original wording of the New Testament. So another preliminary question. I think this is the last of the pre-preface, and we're actually getting into the, the, uh, the lecture. What is a textual variant? It's any place among the manuscripts in which there's variation in wording, including word order, omission, or addition of words, even spelling differences. All those count as textual variants. What doesn't count is capitalization versus lowercase or punctuation. And the reason is because the original manuscripts were all in capital letters, most likely, and there was no punctuation. So that makes it a little bit tricky. In fact, there were no word breaks. They just had to try to figure that out. But actually, in Greek, that's not nearly as difficult as it sounds. So this is what the variants are. Let me start with question number one, then. How many variants do we have? Well, there's one way to measure this that uh, Bart has been fond of saying, and this is one of the times that he actually uh, understates the situation. Uh, words in the New Testament. There are approximately 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. Or if you were Brother Andrew, he would say there are 138,162 words in the Greek New Testament because that's what shows up in our standard text today. 
So 138,000 words in the New Testament. What Bart likes to say is there are more variants in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's a big understatement. The latest figures are that we have about 500,000 textual variants in the manuscripts, just the Greek manuscripts we're talking about, not other languages. The New Testament was translated into several different languages. We have quotations by it by people known as church fathers, patristic quotations. Just the manuscripts alone, we have far more variants than we do have words in the original. If this was the only piece of data we, we, we have, those of you who are not Christians would be rejoicing. Those of you who are Christians would be slitting your wrists. We have some more information, though, to, to, to tell you about. And the big thing I think that is crucial here to get is that the reason we have a lot of textual variants is because we have a lot of manuscripts. If we had one manuscript of the New Testament, it wouldn't disagree with itself. There would be no variants. But does that tell you what the original says? No. It's just the one manuscript that we'd have to deal with. In the year 1707, John Mill, an Oxford scholar, spent, had spent 30 years of his life, his entire adult life, trying to produce a Greek New Testament that listed as many textual variants as he could find. And his Novum Testamentum Graeca came out in 1707. It was a, a very large volume with uh, an apparatus or footnotes that listed all the variants of the 99 Greek New Testament manuscripts he was able to look at. Now keep this in mind as we think about these issues. 99 New Testament manuscripts he had access to. We'll talk about how many we have today. He also read uh, what church fathers had to say through the first few centuries and several ancient translations. And he produced a text that uh, I, I may have a picture of. Yeah, here it is. This is from the Apocalypse or the Book of Revelation. You see the arrow, the, the yellow arrow. What is below that is his apparatus, his footnotes of differences from that text in much smaller print. Revelation has fewer variants than other portions of the New Testament. But I thought I'd show you one of uh, what he did there. He spent 30 years of his life on this, and he created a book that had 30,000 textual variants from uh, the, uh, the Greek New Testament. There were groups that absolutely loved this fact, and there were groups that absolutely hated this fact. Those that loved it were Roman Catholics. They said, look, John Mill has produced a text where you guys have a paper pope, and that paper pope is, um, we're not sure when he's really speaking ex cathedra. He says this in one place, but there's a footnote. Does he really mean that? Which one is it? Our pope, at least, is consistent. And then there were uh, conservative uh, Protestants who said, what John Mill has done is the work of the devil. Why? Because he discovered, he didn't discover the water. I'm, I'm the one who keeps kicking this around. I think I'll leave it right here because I'll probably spill it several more times. It's a good thing I put a cap on it. I have actually destroyed four laptops. When I used to have water in a cup, and I decided after I destroyed my last one two years ago, uh, I, I've got to have a, an, I have an adult sippy cup with coffee that I use uh, at school, and I have bottled water, and I screw that to top on tight. So, anyway, that would have been really entertaining if I had done that tonight. But I would not have been very happy, and my wife would especially not be very happy. So, where were we? You guys got me distracted. What happened? 
Okay, so there were some conservative Christians who said that John Mill, what you did was, was uh, the work of the devil. And frankly, what he did was the work of history, historical investigation, which is always a good thing to do. One of the things that I try to impress upon my students is that we need to be in the pursuit of truth at all costs and go where the evidence leads. John Mill brought him to a place where he said, I'm not sure what the original text of the New Testament is, but I'm a lot closer at getting to what that original wording is by listing all these textual variants. Now we can see the data laid out. Now, Mill died two weeks after this was published, which was absolutely perfect timing. When I published my magnum opus, I want to die two weeks later so that I can avoid all the criticisms. <laughs> Six years after this, though, there was a man who came to his defense, a man by the name of Richard Bentley, and he was a brilliant scholar at Cambridge. Uh, he's universally recognized as light years ahead of his time, and he wrote this book, Remarks Upon a Discourse of Free Thinking, where he talks extensively about John Mill's work. And he said, if there had been but one manuscript of the Greek Testament at the restoration of learning about two centuries ago, back in the early 1500s, when we had our first published Greek New Testament, then we would have had no various readings at all. And would the text be in a better condition then than now that we have 30,000? variant readings. It is good, therefore, to have more anchors than one, and another manuscript to join the first would give more authority as well as security. So what Bentley is saying is the more manuscripts, the more variants. The more variants, the better able we are to determine which one gave rise to which other variant. Even if you have two from the same age, we can tell that. If they're exactly the same date, we can tell that there's a reading that must be antecedent to the other one. Well, today we have an embarrassment of riches, far more than 99 manuscripts. And here's the latest data that we have on the New Testament manuscripts. In Greek alone, the official number is 5,865. Now, I need to adjust that to about 5,500 because that official number, which comes out of uh, Munster, Germany, there, there's a, an institute that's the official cataloger of these manuscripts, they recognize that some of these manuscripts have disappeared, and some of these manuscripts are actually a part of another manuscript that both, they each, got, uh, each section got a different catalog number. I won't get into the details, but basically we have about 5,500 Greek New Testament manuscripts. So if you're at Starbucks tomorrow and somebody says, you know, I heard that we had 5,865 Greek New Testament manuscripts, you'll say, no, no, that's really the, the number is about 5,500. You can correct them. And I'm sure anybody who goes to Starbucks is acquainted with these numbers. That's what the New Testament was originally written in, Greek. We're talking about manuscripts prior to the time of the printing press and the first published Greek New Testament on a printing press, which was 1516. The New Testament immediately spread throughout the ancient world, and by the end of the second century, we believe, it was translated into Latin. And Latin started to take off. It became the lingua franca of all of Europe, and so... Uh, we actually have more manuscripts in Latin than we do in Greek of the New Testament, about 10,000 Latin manuscripts. Not only that, but the New Testament was translated into a number of other languages. Coptic, which is an ancient language, it's Egyptian hieroglyphics put into Greek letters with a few extra letters just thrown in for fun and to confuse modern students who are trying to figure out the verb system of Coptic. Uh, I'm not going to speak any further from personal experience, but it's been a royal pain. Uh, so 
we have Latin manuscripts, we have Coptic, we have Syriac, we have Armenian, Arabic, we have Hebrew manuscripts, Old Church Slavonic, Georgian, Gothic. There's a lot of different languages that the New Testament was translated into before the time of the printing press. And conservatively, we could say there are between 5,000 and 10,000 manuscripts in these other languages. Again, not based on uh, a printed edition. These are all handwritten manuscripts. Now, if you had a magic wand and you could just wipe all of these out in one fell swoop, we would still not be left without a witness. And the reason is because of the church fathers. Starting in the late first century, we have church fathers who comment on the New Testament. There are even one or two fathers who may have written their works before the New Testament was completed. So they, they comment on the New Testament, and as time goes on, they write more and more comments. They would write uh, whole treatises on the book of Romans. Origen, for example, 3rd century, middle of the 3rd century, wrote a 15-volume commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. We don't have the full thing anymore. We have Rufinus's 10-volume abridgment in Latin. So and we're, we're talking about these, these folks simply did not have the gift of brevity, kind of like me, you know, with my preface, you know, it goes on forever. But uh, they did comment on the New Testament. They wrote theological treatises. They did homilies, sermons, commentaries, all sorts of material about the New Testament. And many times they even discussed textual variants, and they said, Actually, the oldest manuscripts don't have this word, but the more recent ones do have it. So they could discuss those things, and we could pinpoint a time and a place when certain manuscripts had variants. So they're extremely helpful. But if you had a magic wand and wiped out all of these other witnesses, you could virtually replicate the entire New Testament many times over just from the writings of the church fathers. And several decades ago, the quotations that have been documented uh, have come to well over a million quotations of the New Testament by these church fathers. Now, we're talking just about New Testament manuscripts. What about other literature? And that is going to come after this quick aside. You can see I don't have my presenter's notes up. I'm following this just like you guys are. So if I get lost, I, I'm going I'm to blame Mike for that, I think, if that happens. Anyway. A quick aside on the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. I want to talk about this institute, CSNTM. CSNTM.org is the website where you can see hundreds of thousands of pages of Greek New Testament manuscripts and even some discussions in English that may be helpful. But you'll see some uh, amazing things there because we have contributed to the number of known Greek New Testament manuscripts significantly since we started in 2002. What is CSNTM? It's an independent, nonprofit institute founded in 2002 based in Plano, Texas. We have two primary objectives, to digitally preserve all Greek New Testament manuscripts, 1,500 Greek New Testament manuscripts and counting. It's about 2.5 million pages of manuscripts. And we want to provide these images free for all, free for all time, in order to help determine the exact wording of the original New Testament. Well, in the beginning, there was microfilm. And it was not good. 
This is what scholars had to use to figure out what these New Testament manuscripts said. They couldn't go to all these libraries and monasteries throughout the world to find the manuscripts. They had to go to places where the microfilms had been done. And there was one location, Munster, Germany, that had done 90% of all the manuscripts on microfilm. This was one of the more recent microfilms they did of a manuscript of the Gospels, and they had to use a reverse image because the positive image was even harder to read. This is not easy to read. Even from my computer, it's not easy to read. You see that little box with uh, dots and blobs? That's a marginal note, and I think what it is, based on this image, is the scribe probably had left out a verse, and the scribe has put a, a note in his text, uh, typically an asterisk, and, and he puts an, an asterisk in the margin saying, this belongs right here. But with microfilms, we could never read them. Scholars that have had to deal with microfilms just ignore the marginal notes because it's too small. You can't read it. So then came digital photography, and it was very good. Here's a page from Romans. That's not a digital photograph, but from a manuscript that's on the island of Patmos. And then we have one of our early cameras photographing it as well. Same page. And it's much, much easier to read. This actually, this manuscript has become so important, it has helped to shape the text of seven letters in the New Testament in terms of what we think the original text said, because this manuscript was virtually unreadable before. And now with these digital images that we've taken, it can be read much more easily. So let me just give you some accomplishments of CSNTM to date. Since this is a captive audience, I can go on. In fact, I'm going to show you all 500,000 images we've taken so far. Just sit tight. You know, there's, there's snacks out in the hallway, but you'll get those uh, probably uh, Tuesday. So we've digitized over half a million pages of New Testament manuscripts. We're the world's leading institute. Tiny institute. We've got seven of us doing this work. We've discovered more than 90 New Testament manuscripts. In the last 16 years, that's more than all the institutes in the world combined have discovered. And we've also trained dozens of grad students to work with manuscripts, many of whom have gone on to get their PhDs and are now leading the charge in this whole discipline of textual criticism. So we've visited a, a number of sites, uh, about 45 sites so far. The, the, I was going to list a bunch of them, but I just I don't have time to do that. But here's... Uh, the island of Patmos, where John wrote the book of Revelation, whether it's John the Apostle or some other person named John, we, we're not exactly sure. But this is on top of the monastery that is a 900-year-old monastery, and it has walls that are as much as 10, 15 feet thick. We've spent a lot of time on Patmos digitizing the manuscripts at this monastery. We've been to Cambridge University. Oxford University, St. Catherine's Monastery in the middle of uh, the Egyptian desert at the base of Mount Sinai, uh, the uh, National Archive in Tirana, Albania. We've been to Yash, Romania. We even went to uh, Transylvania, Romania. That was fun. Uh, and uh, a number of sites, the uh, Biblioteca Medici Laurentiana in Florence, which is the only library that Michelangelo ever designed, uh, we've been down to Australia and New Zealand to photograph all of the Greek New Testament manuscripts in those two countries, and there's quite a few in North America as well. We've, been, we've really been in a number of different sites. You're just going to have to trust me on that. Here's some example photographs of what we've shot, and this is 
this is VGA, so the quality isn't quite as good, but I think you get a sense that this is pretty amazing stuff. Handwritten manuscripts. Isn't that gorgeous? It really shows how much these scribes valued the Bible. They didn't treat other documents this well. This is uh, another one that's from, it says, from the uh, Gospel according to Matthew. And it tells you what day, what Sabbath, or what uh, Sunday you're supposed to read from uh, this Gospel. And that's about a thousand-year-old manuscript with the color still gorgeous. Here's the oldest manuscript of Paul's letter, letters to, to, all, to all of his letters. Uh, and this is um, Galatians at the very bottom of it. This is actually the first page I had when I started the lecture. And the, the text down there can barely be read. Older photographs of this, it couldn't be read. Uh, CSNTM is actually republishing this papyrus and others, three of the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament, and we are discovering literally thousands of letters that could not be seen prior to digital photography. It's a very exciting thing. Okay, that's enough of, of my shameless advertising. So now back to the number of New Testament manuscripts. But we have contributed to that fund almost 100 manuscripts. The New Testament, if you were to compare it to the average classical work, what would we end up with? Well, the average classical Greek writer has less than 15 copies of his work still in existence. You stack them up, they're about four feet high. So how would that compare to the New Testament? I, I thought about this, but how can I express this visually? So I thought, well, the average classical work is kind of like this podium, about four feet high. This is actually a photograph of this very podium. And then the New Testament, what could I use to illustrate that? Well, how about the Empire State Building? And I have to add, in New York City, to those of you who are, uh, I guess, USD students, is that right? Because uh, you don't know where it is, but uh, anyway. But that's not to scale. Now I'm going to show you this to scale. Here's the podium. Okay, now you can see it. See that dot? It's, it's about a pixel. It's four feet tall. And here's the Empire State Building, 1,454 feet tall. But it's not just one Empire State Building. So you have the average classical author. He's got manuscripts that stack up to one podium. The New Testament. We're just talking about the Greek and other versions, just like we are for the uh, classical authors. And uh, we're not talking about the Church Fathers' quotations. I have no idea how to quantify that. It's not just one Empire State Building. It's four and a half. That's 6,600 feet tall, a mile and a quarter high versus four feet high. So you can understand why scholars speak about having an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the New Testament. And you can understand why we have far more textual variants for the New Testament than any classical authors have of their works. Because we have a whole lot more manuscripts than they do. Uh, I, I was going to talk to you a little bit about Greco-Roman historians and biographies. I'll just uh, touch on this briefly. You could go through and see a number of uh, historians and biographers, which is very similar to the genre we have for the New Testament. And we've got Pliny the Elder right around the time of the first, uh, when the New Testament was written, Plutarch's Lives, Josephus, the historian for Judaism at the end of the first century, Polybius, Pausanias, who wrote a geography of, Greek, of Greece. And we have either no manuscripts or just small shreds of manuscripts 
for 700 years for Pliny, 800 years Plutarch, 800 for Josephus, etc. These are well-known, well-known historians and biographers. They are not just the average classical authors. Then there's Herodotus and his histories. We do have some fragments, but not much, for 1,500 years. Xenophon's Hellenica. We're waiting 1,800 years before we get anything more than a few scraps of papyrus. If the New Testament were in that kind of shape, it would be like saying the first substantial copy of the New Testament, of any portion of the New Testament, more than just a few pages, was written at about the same time that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. That's when skeptics would have a claim that we can't possibly get back to the New Testament. And even then, I'm not so sure that claim would be that impressive because scholars who work with these other ancient texts, they say, this is the best we've got, and we're pretty darn sure that it comes close to what that author originally said. So when you think about the New Testament, we've talked about the number of manuscripts, but how, how far back do they go? Well, let me talk to you about the discovery of P52, which for those of you who are older folks, you know about the P-51 Mustang in World War II. This is not a, a, an airplane. This is Papyrus 52. And it's a manuscript that was discovered in 1934. But let me go back 90 years prior to that. In 1844, there was a scholar at Tübingen University in Germany named Ferdinand Christian Bauer. And Bauer using Hegelian dialectic, basically uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You've all heard that, right? You're familiar with that. Like when a father tells his daughter, you will not have uh, a tattoo on your body. And she says, yes, I will. Thesis, antithesis, and then the synthesis is she gets a tattoo. But, uh, well, it doesn't quite work out that way for, for Bauer. But he, he studied under Professor Hegel. This is in the 1700s, 1800s when he was there. And he decided that on basis of this philosophical construct, the New Testament was dated very, very late. And the Gospel of John in particular was extremely late. He dated the Gospel of John to uh, about 160 or later, A.D. 160. Well, that's a long time after John would have lived. And consequently, Bauer argued that there's nothing of any historical reliability in John's gospel. That view, or a view close to that, held sway for nearly a hundred years in European scholarship, until a man named Colin H. Roberts, freshly minted out of his doctoral program, was going through some scraps of papyri left by his predecessor at the uh, Manchester University's John Ryland's library. And he came across this scrap of papyrus. The actual size is about the size of a credit card. And on one side, he noticed it was John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. On the back side, John 18, verses 37 and 38. What that told him was that this manuscript was originally written on a codex. A codex is like our modern book form, where it's bound in, in, on one side, and then you have the, the three cut pages, and you can flip it. You know, some of you have seen a book. Most of you probably have not, because you use computers, and that goes back to the older technology of scrolling. Uh, but uh, we know that the codex, Christians didn't invent it, invent it, but they were the first to popularize it. We know it was invented in the, in the second half of the first century A.D., and in the first 500 years of the Common Era, over 90% of all Christian books were written on a codex, while only 14% or so 
of non-Christian books were written on a codex. It was the first, and I think only time, in the history of the church where Christians were ahead of the technological curve. So, here's a manuscript that uh, C.H. Roberts looked at, and he was able to date it. He said it's dated somewhere between A.D. 100 and 150. He sent photographs to the three leading papyrus scholars, known as a papyrologist in Europe, and each one of them independently wrote back to him and said, this should be dated as early as A.D. 100, as late as A.D. 150. Here was a manuscript, a small fragment of a manuscript, that told us that the whole Gospel of John was originally what this was of, and it sent two tons of German scholarship to the flames. An ounce of evidence is what C.H. Roberts discovered, and that was worth a pound of presumption, or two tons of presumption in this case. That's, I think, what we're dealing with when we're looking at New Testament manuscripts. What is the evidence? It may not be a lot of evidence, and yet I'd say 5,500 manuscripts in Greek is a lot of evidence. So we also have some other manuscripts that come early, as many as a dozen from the 2nd century, and then we go all the way through the, the uh, 10th century, A.D. 1,900 years after the New Testament is completed, we have at least 967 Greek New Testament man manuscripts written in the first millennium. Now, what if you were to compare that with the average classical author? Within 900 years of the New Testament's completion, almost 1,000 manuscripts, as we just saw. Within 900 years of the average classical author's writings, there are zero manuscripts. You saw that for some of these better-known authors, 1,200 years, 1,500 years. We're waiting a long time before we see any copies. So when someone says, well, gee, we don't have copies of the New Testament until maybe we have, we have to wait for copies of copies of copies. Well, let's multiply that uh, several dozen times, maybe a hundred times, when you're talking about other ancient literature. Compared to anything else in the ancient world, the New Testament, on average, is about a thousand times more evidential. That is, we have about a thousand times more material evidence for the New Testament than we do the average classical author. And it comes as much as a thousand years earlier than the average classical author. That's an embarrassment of riches. And it is an embarrassment because we simply don't have enough scholars to work on this. Okay, so I said we're going to ask four questions. We're done with question one now. Has the Bible been, but I also said, it, I, I get to the end real fast, so the, first, the last three questions will be quick. Has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said? Of course not. We still can go back up that line and see a manuscript from the second century or third or fourth. We're not just dependent on that last person in the, the line of the telephone game where it's a game that's intentionally trying to garble it. We have several lines of transmission. It's not oral. It's written, and we can go back and check those lines of transmission much early and do the comparisons. If I were to read out uh, a long statement to all of you, that lasted maybe I read for five or ten minutes, and I asked each one of you to write out exactly what I wrote. I have a good feeling that I'd be able to reconstruct exactly what I said based on what you wrote. I would know which scribes did a better job. Some of you leave out whole sentences. Some of you have nonsense. Some of you have no clue how to spell. Uh, others um, are, are very, very painstakingly accurate. You'll miss something, but the scribe next to you will get it. We can reconstruct that from these variants, from these manuscripts. Another way to look at this is in 1611, the King James Bible came out. 
And the New Testament was essentially based on eight manuscripts. And of those eight, three were really heavily used. A hundred years earlier, by the, the first published Greek New Testament done by a man named Erasmus. Three manuscripts. The oldest of these was 11th century, and he didn't trust that one very much because he thought it was more corrupt. He didn't know how old it was. He had no idea how to date it. Now, in 2018, we have 5,500 manuscripts plus, and our oldest go back to the second century. So as time goes on, we're actually getting closer and closer to the original text, not farther away. Okay, that's question number one. Number two. What kinds of textual variations are there? And I'll be much faster about the rest of these. But I wanted to talk to you about the variants and the manuscripts. It's such important evidence to think about. Well, I could break this down into several different categories, but I can simplify it this way. Over 99% make virtually no difference at all. For example, there are spelling differences in the manuscripts that really affect nothing. You guys did not laugh at that. Where are you from? John, or the author of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, was a very creative speller. He spelled the same exact word three different ways within the space of eight verses. I don't know how he could have pulled that off, but my brother was a creative speller, is a creative speller. He one time wrote a check out to me and misspelled his own name. I wonder if that was intentional, because it's kind of hard to cash. But uh, anyway, these don't really affect anything. They can't even be translated. There are so many different kinds of things that don't get translated, difference in word order, uh, spelling differences, other things. And so I have a question for you Greek geeks. How many ways are there to say John loves Mary in ancient Greek? Well, let me give you some, some issues. Now, if you don't know Greek, you still need to write the answers down because this will show up on the exam tomorrow. There's word order differences. Greek can put it in any order at once. John loves Mary, Mary loves John, loves Mary, John loves John, Mary. It doesn't matter because Greek is a highly inflected language. You tell what the subject is by the end. You tell what the direct object is by the ending. And the Greek definite article, the word the, occurs with proper names. We don't know exactly why. I wrote my master's thesis on when the article does not appear in Greek. I spent over 1,200 hours writing that thesis. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on when it does appear in Greek. These two works could cure the most hopeless insomniac. We have the article in the Greek New Testament is far more common than any other word. One out of seven words is the in Greek. And we still don't know why it's used with proper names, although there have been lots of theories. Nothing has compelled scholars to believe it uh, one way or another. So you can say that John loves Mary, that John loves the Mary, John loves the Mary, and it's always translated John loves Mary. Then there's differences in spelling. For example, the name in John, for John in Greek either has two N's in the middle or one N. Every time we see it, there are some manuscripts with two N's, some with one, Ioannes or Ioannes. Pronounced the same spelled differently. So how many ways are there to say John loves Mary in Greek? There's eight different ways. I had to obviously put this in Greek. If I put this in English, it would say John loves Mary each time, and so you wouldn't get a sense. So you need to, I, I'll, I'll give you a little time to write these down so you have, uh, have the data. It's not just this number of ways. There's another eight ways 
to say John loves Mary. Same word for loves each time, and it's always translated John loves Mary. It's not Mary is loved by John. Every verse, every sentence, I mean, is translated John loves Mary. And some more ways, and more. I can assure you these are all different. This took me eight hours one day to come up with this. So I hope you appreciate this. Yeah, I'm anal like Brother Andrew, I know. 96 ways to say John loves Mary in Greek without changing the basic meaning at all. But there's also conjunctions that are often untranslated that uh, go along with sentences like this. And I just picked on a few of them, and so there's some more ways to say John loves Mary. Hold on a second. ways to say John loves Mary in Greek without changing anything. Now, there's actually more ways, but after eight hours I felt that I proved my point. These are not all the ways to say John loves Mary in Greek. Other legitimate word orders swell the numbers to over 500, and a different verb for loves now mushrooms the numbers to nearly 1,200. Bart Ehrman said we could go on nearly forever talking about specific places in which the texts of the New Testament came to be changed, either accidentally or intentionally. The examples are not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. He's absolutely right. And if we talked about these, that would cure the most hopeless insomniac. If we can say John loves Mary over 1,000 times in Greek, without substantially changing the meaning. The number of textual variants for the New Testament is meaningless. It's a meaningless number. What counts is the nature of these variants. What really is affected? And the smallest category of variants are those that are both meaningful and viable. That is, they, they change the meaning to some degree, and they have a, a, a good chance of being authentic. That's what we mean by viable. Less than one-fifth of 1% of all textual variants fit this group. Here's a way to represent it. The big blue box is the number of textual variants we have. And when you hear about 500,000 textual variants, this is the way that most people think about it. But let's talk about the ones that are actually significant. It's that little yellow box in the corner. That's what we're really talking about. I am a member of the Society of Biblical Literature. Bart Ehrman is also a member of that, and he has given several lectures there. I've given lectures there as well. And when we have this group of textual scholars to get together and talk about variants, I can assure you we've never talked about this large blue box. We'd get kicked out of the society for doing something so boring. What we're focusing on are those that do change the meaning of the text to some degree. So let me give you a couple of illustrations. Here's one of my favorites, Mark chapter 9, verse 29. Jesus' disciples were trying to kick out some demons, cast out some demons, and they were unsuccessful. So he said to them, this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Or did he just say, by prayer, period? This is the only place in the entire New Testament where and fasting may be part of the original text in the sense of uh, it's a command or a suggestion that you need to fast to do something. So maybe if some of you are involved in exorcisms, you might want to hedge your bet and pray and fast, or you might just pray. Most scholars think uh, the original text ends with prayer, but maybe it also is fasting. And, of course, 
just looking at me, you can tell that I, I agree with the shorter text, but let's not talk about that further. Hey, let me pick a passage that everybody is much more familiar with. Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, last book of the Bible. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Is that really the number of the beast? In 1843, a manuscript was deciphered that had not been able to be read before because it was uh, from the early 5th century, about A.D. 400, and it was scraped clean by a scribe several hundred years later who wrote on top of it. A German scholar named Constantin Tischendorf spent two years at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris deciphering these 157 leaves, retracing the letters of the undertext without retracing the upper text. Very, very patient man, and he got a great deal of acclaim for pulling this off. This manuscript, Codex, is known as the Framie Rescriptus, has become the second most important manuscript of the book of Revelation that we have today. In many places, it has the original wording where with the most important manuscript does not. And they kind of vie for which one. It's kind of like between Avis and Hertz for you old folks who know about how that used to be done. But this manuscript does not have 666 at Revelation 13:18. Instead, it says 616. That was the only manuscript that we knew of that had that until 1998, when at the Ashmolean Museum of Oxford University, several papyri were published, and one of them that was just 26 fragments of a manuscript that was spread out over nine chapters in Revelation. Papyrus number 115 is now the oldest manuscript we have for this passage. And that manuscript also says the number of the beast is 616. So one of the most important manuscripts and the oldest manuscript of this passage say the number of the beast is 616. I've had the privilege of seeing both of these in the flesh and uh, it's been exciting. I could confirm it. I saw them under a magnifying glass, microscope, and absolutely that's what the original text of these two manuscripts says, the 616. Now, most scholars who've wrestled with this have said, we're not sure. We still think 666 is probably the original wording here. I don't know. Some days I wake up and I say, I think it's 616. That's what I do when I wake up. I'm sure you think about the same things. But... but um, other days, oh, I think it's 666. Other days, it's 315, and I go right back to bed when I'm doing that. So. But here's the thing. Most scholars would say, yeah, 666, that's the number of the beast. 616, that's the neighbor of the beast. He lives a few doors down, you know. I just like to be in that neighborhood. I don't know of any doctrinal statement of any church, any theological institute, uh, any denomination that says in its doctrinal statement, besides things like we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the deity of Christ, you know, things along those lines, and we believe that the number of the beast is 666. It may be an important textual issue, but it's not that important. It doesn't rise even to that level. So these are just a couple of examples. There's plenty more, and I'm sure we'll come up with some of those during the Q&A. Question three, what theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? Well, I'll go back to Dan Brown in his Da Vinci Code. And he has Sir Lee Teabing say to Sophie, My dear, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. 
That time in history was when the Council of Nicaea met in A.D. 325, according to Tebing and Dan Brown. Emperor Constantine was the one who convened it, and then he left and came back towards the end of it later in that summer. So what Dan Brown is saying is that Constantine invented the deity of Christ. We saw that when we already read from M.M. al-Azmi. He believes something similar to that. But it was the Orthodox Church, the one that came out in the 4th century that finally uh, won the battle against the others that affirmed a view of the deity of Christ that Christians today would hold to. Remember when I told you an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presupposition? Here's an ounce of evidence. P66 and that's uh, the first leaf of P66. Did you see it? I hope you wrote it down. Um, you can read along with me if you'd like in John 1.1. This is a manuscript dated about A.D. 200, about 125 years older than uh, uh, the uh, Council of Nicaea. So here's what it says. I'll read it real quickly for you. In arche en halagas, kai halagas en an kai thaas en halagas. Or, you probably know it better as, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What P66 says, 125 years before the Council of Nicaea, is what every single manuscript of John's Gospel, no matter the date or the language, says at this place. Jesus is unequivocally called God. The same could be said for the major passages that affirm his deity, his virgin birth, his sinlessness, his death on a cross, his bodily resurrection, and his second coming. And there are none of these places that deny these things. There are some where the textual variant is, it's not an affirmation, but it's also not a denial. You see the difference. That's a very important distinction to make. So we get to our fourth question. In other words, what theological issues are dependent on this? nothing essential. Maybe whether you should fast when you're doing exorcisms, but not too many other things. Has the essence, our final question, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was paleographer extraordinaire and the principal librarian of the British Museum for many, many years, said this about 80 years ago. The general result of all these discoveries, when a lot of these early papyrus discoveries were being made, and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable word of God. I think that's a great statement. In substantial integrity, we have in our hands the veritable word of God. But it's not just a guy like Kenyon who says that. Listen to somebody whom you already know intimately because he was here last week, Bart Ehrman. In his book, Misquoting Jesus, in the paperback edition that came out uh, after about six months after the hardback edition, they had an appendix. And on page 252, the editors of this book asked this question. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy? based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts. Notice, they're not asking, do you believe these core tenets to be in jeopardy? They're asking, why do you believe? In other words, the way they read his book is the way hundreds of thousands of college students and others have read his book. Namely, that Bart Ehrman is saying that the core tenets of orthodoxy, of uh, the Christian faith, are in jeopardy by these textual variants. He even sounded like he was saying that earlier. Here's his answer. 
essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Page 252, misquoting Jesus of the paperback version. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. And so I conclude by simply saying, I agree. I could have put it better myself. The New Testament text in all essentials and in the vast majority of particulars is absolutely certain. Thank you very much. to a time of um, Q&A, and we're going to start with um, a 15-minute Q&A with our resident biblical scholar, uh, Dr. James Murphy. Um, Dr. Murphy teaches here at SDSU. Um, he actually has a class this semester, I believe, in the, in the Gospels, um, and so you I saw you over there taking notes, um, asking um, some, uh, hopefully what would be uh, challenging questions uh, where we can get the discussion going. Um, and then after this time of Q&A, we're going to have audience questions. So um, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you for that. That was really, really great. Um, I am going to lead off with a question that I asked you about earlier, and so you will have to fill the audience in on some of this. Okay. But there, um, in, in fairly recent years, there's been um, uh, the discovery of another uh, manuscript piece or a papyrus, papyrus? papyrus. papyrus uh, uh, from the Gospel of Mark. And... Uh, uh, and you kind of uh, sort of let the world know a little bit, uh, yeah. uh, tip the hat on that a little bit. And as part of that, there was a question of this could be possibly our earliest uh, witness uh, to the Markan text at the time. And so there was a lot of discussion uh, about might this be something that is, actually dates back to the first century itself, which that would be huge. That would be huge. Um, but So my question then essentially on that is just simply, um, first century mark really first century is that the assessment that we have at this time uh, what is the fragment what's its size and its scope uh, and why was it hyped perhaps uh, as being so significant find does it still sort of live up to the hype um, so there's sort of a lot of little questions I don't think you're allowed to ask that many questions okay. you can simplify it to two that's your quota you know more no, that's, we're that's, academics right yeah, that's yeah. what we end up doing yeah, you're asking questions with footnotes just like uh, John Mills' text. Okay. Um, in 2012, I did make an announcement when I debated uh, Bart at his school, uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill. It was our third debate. And I was encouraged to make this announcement. Uh, I won't get into the details of who encouraged me or why, but uh, basically also officially um, authorized to do so. And at that time, my understanding was that one of the world's leading paleographers or papyrologists dated this firmly to the first century. I know who the papyrologist is. Uh, I, I respect his opinion highly. And so I, I said, uh, I've got some firm evidence that this is from the first century. What I did not know at the time was that the group that was being represented did not yet own the manuscript. And I thought, with this kind of announcement, that would shoot the price right through the roof. If you actually have a first century 
fragment of any part of the New Testament written in the same century that the New Testament is, that's, that is huge. That would, that would make a fragment like this worth millions of dollars. In fact, even second century fragments are worth a couple million dollars typically. So uh, that was what I was told. Later I found out that this paleographer had already changed his mind. It wasn't first century. And just this last uh, April or May, the manuscript was finally published. It's P137 or Papyrus 137. And it was published in the uh, Oxyrhynchus Papyri volumes that comes out of uh, England. Uh, it is a fragment that is now dated to the late 2nd or early 3rd century. Now that sounds, oh, what a downer. It happens to be the oldest manuscript we have of Mark's Gospel, though, still. The next oldest is firmly in the 3rd century. But this is a small fragment. It's about the size of a of a, of a six-inch ruler, you know, one of those uh, a large bandage, something like that. I've seen the thing, and I was very excited about uh, what I could see in the manuscript, uh, but it is not first century. It's late second, early third, and it agrees with other manuscripts of later times. I mean, we just don't have those kinds of changes that people like to talk about. Uh, you, you have differences in these early manuscripts, some would like to say, well, we don't have professional scribes, so I'm going to elaborate a little bit further on this. Uh, this is from Mark chapter 1, by the way. It has uh, verses 17 and 18 on one side, and I think the other side is verses 9 and 10. But uh, there are some who would like to say the earliest scribes were not professional scribes. Christianity was a, a, a legal religion, and so they would have been sloppy in the kinds of mistakes they made. But what we've discovered is that whether a scribe is professional or not, it did not impact how careful they were in writing out the actual words that they're doing. There's been a dissertation done at University of Edinburgh that has just been published that argues this. And the kinds of mistakes these early scribes made who were not professionally trained are the kind of mistakes that you get if, if some of you were to write out, say, the preamble to the Constitution, and it starts out, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect onion. Now, again, this group just didn't get it. I don't know what the problem is. Um, you all know that that's a mistake. It's supposed to be cucumber, not onion. But you know, so so that's the kind of a mistake that scribes immediately would recognize and fix. And there have been some recent studies about those kinds of mistakes that are automatically fixed by the next generation of scribes. Uh, and those. Those studies, are they just in the last how many years? Uh, five years. In the last five years. So yeah. very recent. Yeah. Uh, okay. Two of my former students have, uh, have published on this. One got his doctorate at Edinburgh, Zachary Cole, and the other got his doctorate at Cambridge University, Peter Gurry. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're much too efficient because you actually just answered my second question by oh, good. tackling that. Because uh, I was going to ask about, because uh, you alerted, you alluded early on in, in talk, your talk tonight about um, the early copyists were probably not trained, and so I was going to kind of follow that. So, really Zachary Cole's dissertation dealt with that specific issue. If they're not trained, does that mean that they did a poor quality job? So there is a, just as another example, like 666616, um, one of the examples that, uh, that you know, I'm sure, uh, that Bart talks about in his Orthodox Corruption of Scripture is uh, uh, from, I think it's Luke, 20, Luke 3.22, uh, which is essentially it's the baptism mm -hmm. uh, story, right? And so you have 
Jesus in uh, in Mark and in Matthew have Jesus uh, says a particular thing which is alluding back to Psalm 2-7, right? And in Luke we have this this variance there. And I guess his essential argument is that um, we've got these two variants. Um, does it make more sense to describe as going to change it one way versus another? So, so in one reading it reads, um, uh, you know, this this is the voice from heaven says, "This is my son, uh, in whom I'm well pleased." And I think I can't remember if it says, "And listen to him," or something in one of the variants. But in the other, it, it says, "Today I have begotten you." Right. And uh, that would seem like that would be an example of one that does have some ramification. I think I agree with you that overall, when you take the whole scope of the New Testament, it's probably less of a big deal. But if you're just looking at that variant, there's some there's some impact there, right? It it looks like it. Uh, it's Codex uh, Bezai that has. Today I have begotten you, and other manuscripts have uh, this is my beloved son, or you are my beloved son, depending on whether it's Matthew or Mark. But uh, Codex Bezai is a 5th century manuscript at Cambridge University, and what that manuscript says is, today I have begotten you, but that comes from Psalm 2, which Old Testament scholars have argued is an enthronement psalm. And it doesn't mean that God has adopted Jesus as his son on the day of his baptism. That enthronement meant that this is the time when uh, someone acceded to the, 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 the throne became the king of Israel. And consequently, it's not talking about God adopting Jesus as his own son. It's rather saying, this is the day that I'm making a public announcement that you are, in fact, the king, the Messiah. It sounds like it's affecting things. When, when you probe deeper and look at how the psalm is actually used, then it's uh, Do you think really in that instance, his, his argument that some scribe at some point saw that, and maybe knowing the Christian arguments about the nature of Jesus at the time, maybe it been more likely to change it the other way just to try to help a theological camp. Yeah, the, the scribes typically don't know Hebrew, and they don't know the Old Testament uh, background very well at all, these Greek scribes. So they would not know this is an enthronement psalm, that is the day that someone becomes the king of Israel or of Judah. And so they say, oh, my goodness, this looks like uh, it's saying that God adopts Jesus as his son. So we talked about the uh, idea of adoptionism, that Jesus was not God, but he became adopted uh, by God. And uh, they would only understand that ramification, not how it's actually being used in the Old Testament. And so some scribes would change that. If that's the original reading, they would change it to conform more with their understanding of who Jesus is. But the reality is they haven't really changed anything. Because either way you read it, it's God is saying, you are the son of God, you are my son. And it's not uh, a denial of his uh, divinity at all. So does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it well, it does to me. <laughs> um, it, to, another thing to me, sort of, uh, I mean, we had Ehrman here and then now you. And some of this strikes me as more like a, is a glass half empty. It doesn't sound like you guys disagree on so many of the fundamentals. It's that it is almost more, it's not just preference, but it's it's like the glass half full. I mean, do you, do you feel that way it about it? That's exactly right. Uh, at one point, Bart said that uh, if he and Bruce 
Metzger, his mentor, were shut up in a room and could not get out of the room until they both decided on what the original New Testament said. He said we would disagree in no more than about 50 places. So it's not a matter of what text we think is the original that is really the issue. It's a matter of how we interpret that text that we think is the original. And uh, Gordon Fee, another well-known textual critic uh, who's a good friend with, with Bart, uh, said the problem with Bart's work, uh, Orthodox Corruption and Misquoting Jesus, is that he turns possibility into probability and probability into certainty, and then he comes up with uh, an interpretation that just seems bizarre. So it's how he's viewing the data that he comes up with a viewpoint that sounds rather unorthodox. But I don't think that... Uh, uh, it, it, it fits with the text very well. Let, let me give an illustration. Sure. Okay. His, his, Bart's favorite example of orthodox corruption is Matthew 24:36, where we read uh, that uh, Jesus, it's the Olivet Discourse, and he's prophesying, and he says, uh, that day and hour no one knows except the Father alone. But he, he adds, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father alone knows when Jesus is going to return. Now, there are some manuscripts, later Byzantine manuscripts, that would be conforming to orthodoxy that drop the statement, nor the Son. They have, no one knows the day or the hour, neither the angels, except the Father alone. And, and Ehrman would like to argue that these scribes changed the text because it seems to impugn the character of Jesus and his omniscience, and so they, they cut out that line, nor the Son. The problem is twofold. First, in the parallel in Mark's Gospel, Mark 13:32, there are no variants. I mean, virtually every man, we know of one late Greek manuscript that drops, nor the Son. But everything else has neither the angels nor the Son. So these same scribes who would copy Matthew and Mark apparently don't have a problem with what looks like a denial of Jesus' omniscience in Mark. And Matthew, that doesn't make any sense. The other thing is Matthew adds the word alone about the Father, and Mark does not have that. So in Mark you have, no one knows the day or the hour, neither the angels nor the Son, except the Father. In Matthew you have, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels, except the Father alone. So by Matthew adding the word alone and, and relating it just to the Father, he's implying the same thing that Mark says explicitly. So there is no difference in the fundamental meaning. And that's his, his number one proof text for Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Well, um, we're going to keep going with questions here, but I want to just make a note um, as you're listening to the dialogue. If you do have questions, the text is now on the screen if you didn't know it. Um, so you can text any questions that you have uh, when we get to audience Q&A. But I'll let you gentlemen continue. Yeah, just, I mean, just a little bit more. Um, so... This is sometimes news to uh, uh, people of faith, but we widely know this in, in scholarship. Um, it's widely held that, uh, that the four Gospels are not independent witnesses like right. two, four different witnesses to the same car accident. Uh, so I take it that you hold that, uh, that there's a literary dependence between yes. at least three of the four. Okay, okay, so there's a literary relationship. Um, most scholars, well... And I hold to Mark and priority, too. So. Okay. The, the idea that Mark wrote first and that Matthew is dependent upon Mark as a source, that Luke is dependent upon Mark as a source. Um, most scholars, I think, still uh, hold 
somewhat to the notion there's a, there's a lot of shared material between Matthew and Luke. Uh, and so most scholars for some time have uh, hypothesized that um, there may have been a, a now lost source that Matthew and Luke also used. Do you hold to that? To that yeah, Q or Quella, source. Yeah, I, th I think there was a source that Matthew and Luke used whether it's a written source or an oral source, that's difficult to tell. I think it's probably a combination. Okay. So I'll get into a little bit more uh, thorny area than with you, uh, perhaps. I mean, you deal with manuscript, manuscripts and the manuscript tradition. That gets us back so far. But a lot of what we also talk about in New Testament studies is that there may have been some oral tradition before things start to get put down. And so... Um, you know, one, for example, one of the so one of the things that, that Ehrman talked about in his uh, remarks was not just the uh, the difficulties with the manuscript tradition, but just that there are these differences between the Gospels themselves. So when you look at, for example, um, there's the centurion that brings uh, that comes to Jesus, and uh, you know he's got um, a servant that is really sick, and wants Jesus' help with this. Matthew says the centurion comes himself and asks Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, I'll go to your house with you. No, I'm not worthy of that. But Luke tells us a little bit different story, that the centurion uh, does not come to Jesus. He dispatches uh, people to go to Jesus to ask on his behalf. And then once they have Jesus en route, then, then he dispatches some more. Uh, so there are these differences within the current gospel traditions. Um, do you talk about that in your own classes? Does that come up, or do you only deal with the differences in the new? So oh, in other words, there's, there's, these, there's these supposed discrepancies between, within the gospels mm -hmm. as we have them. That's different than the discrepancies in the manuscript tradition, right? Right. right. It is a difference, and you need to wrestle with First, if you can try to establish the text of the original of the four Gospels, then you wrestle with what are the differences and what are they trying to tell us. As I mentioned in a class that I was uh, teaching in earlier uh, today, that the Gospels are not photographers taking a photograph of Jesus that you can layer on top of, of the other so that it says exactly the same thing. They are all giving us portraits of Jesus, and each with their own emphasis. They're being selective. Uh, as one scholar said, it's impossible to state a bare fact. Every, every fact has interpretation spun into it somehow. Now, uh, Mike Lacona, whom I understand you guys have tried to get here, he hasn't come yet. Uh, he's, he's done some terrific work on the Gospels, and he just got a book published a year ago on why are there differences in the Gospels. Mike spent five years looking at uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and comparing the kinds of differences you have, this kind of a difference, did the centurion come, did he send somebody, uh, and there's a number of other uh, kinds of things that are, that are just flat out different in how they're expressing something, and he compared it to Plutarch's lives. Now, this was his idea, Mike's a longtime friend, it's a brilliant idea he came up with. Plutarch wrote the lives of various famous people, and when Plutarch wrote about one Caesar, for example, in one book, and then he wrote about somebody else in another book, he might reference some of the material that he talked about, uh, the Caesar in this other book. 
and he doesn't say it the same way. He might say exactly the same kind of a thing that you have in terms of the difference between Matthew and Luke. In other words, you'll have uh, what looks, it's called telescoping, where you're collapsing the narrative and you're not telling all the specific details, but you're telling that the centurion came when the centurion's representative actually came. And you've got that kind of a thing. So what Lacona did is he discovered that in uh, Plutarch's lives, the kinds of differences that he made where he's the same author each time are exactly the kinds of things that some scholars would call discrepancies in the Gospels. And it's just the way ancient his historiography was done. Different than today. It is different from today, yeah. Today, uh, what we always say is, uh, we, we never say, you didn't quote me right, because we got all the recording devices to make sure somebody quoted somebody right. It's rather, you took it out of context. In that day, their concern was not to quote somebody exactly, but to make sure that they got the gist of what was being said and done accurately. So, just some broader questions. What would you like the public to know, uh, our general audience, um, or to understand better about biblical scholarship, about what we do? And we all do slightly different things, but when you're trying to bridge that gap between the academy and, uh, and, the, and the laity, what are some things that you really want to, them to know about us, what we do? I think uh, non-scholars, at least non-biblical scholars, they will look at the Bible as a very personal issue uh, because it speaks in authoritative terms like no other book does. And in the academy, sometimes, in fact, I think too frequently, when we treat the Bible, we treat it as though it's a textbook that we can analyze without it also being a book that informs our lives and teaches us. And so what I would like lay people to do is remind scholars that we are not the authority over Scripture, but Scripture is the authority over us. And at the same time, I would like scholars to inform lay people that you don't read the Bible as though it's a 20th century history book. It was not written for that purpose. It's, it's not doesn't conform to our uh, way of doing history. Each one of these evangelists, the gospel writers, has a message to communicate. And it's not just a message of here's what happened. That is, that's, that's part of what they're saying to make sure that it's grounded in history but it's also shrouded in mystery. They are trying to inculcate faith in Jesus Christ. And frankly, the Bible is the church's book. When scholars who are not part of the church are examining it, they're outside of that scope. And I, I think sometimes they do a real disservice because they can't grasp fully what uh, the intention is. Okay, I, I think we're going to move on now to uh, audience questions, and I think we have some people who might be roaming around with mics, so if you want to ask a question in the mic, um, raise your hand. Uh, we will give priority to um, the questions that are asked uh, from the audience. Um, if you don't want to do that, you can also text in your questions. Um, but I'm going to begin with a question that we already have had text, texted in, um, and it's a question about the Orthodox Church. So you mentioned the Orthodox Church, and somebody was asking, um, are you talking about the Greek Orthodox Church? And if not that, what, what do you mean when you talk about the Orthodox Church? That was in the quotation from M.M. al-Azami. And what he meant by that was not the Eastern Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox Church. What he meant was that which rose to become 
what Catholics and Protestants today and Eastern Orthodox would all agree in terms of the essentials of the Christian faith. There were seven different uh, creeds that all three branches of Christendom would agree on. That's what he meant by that. And that's what I meant in, in that discussion, in that context. So they got the words right, but they took it out of context. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, if you have questions, hold your hands up high, and then um, our mic... Uh, so we got one in the back if you want to roam back there. So our, our mics will be roaming around. Um, the next question that we have is, why do you think scholars like yourself seem to have uh, such a difficult time making their evidence known slash believed to the general public in a more meaningful way? Well, I think I do pretty good. good <laughs> uh, I, I, I do think that scholars tend to uh, be introspective and not be concerned about uh, the broader implications of their studies. And frankly, I was perfectly content to do my, my biblical scholarship without relating it to lay people until Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code came out. Then I was asked by a couple of other um, scholars, professors, to uh, co-author this book, Reinventing Jesus. And that's the first book that I've written that was meant for a, a lay audience. Uh, but uh, it's been something that I'm beginning to learn that we need to be able to communicate what we're doing for a lay audience so they can see what the significance of the stuff is for their lives, too. And at least I'm, I'm trying to do that. I try to communicate about textual criticism. It's hard for me to believe that I could speak for an hour and a half to a group of lay people in South Dakota about textual criticism, and none of you is asleep yet. That's, that's pretty impressive. So uh, hopefully it was uh, interesting, and, and I think you, you see that it was very relevant. Excellent. We've got a question in the back. Sure. Am I on? All right. Uh, Who's First asking all, this question? Can my you, name's Alan Gentry. Okay, I just if you can raise your yeah. hand or something, I can. Okay. Uh, the question I wanted to ask was: You argued in your lecture that as time goes on, we get closer to what the definitive Greek text is. If that's the case, then how can we have any confidence in ever reaching what a definitive text is, especially when we look back over the past in the history, especially during the time of the Reformation? and the formation of the King James Bible? Okay, good question. Uh, I do not think we can be confident that we've ever arrived at the definitive test.